I want to congratulate Lincoln Riley and the Oklahoma Sooners for showing up last Saturday night against Missouri State and taking care of business. They successfully blocked out the noise, overcame some adversity with missing players dotting the lineup, and did exactly what they needed to do against a hysterically outmatched opponent. Sure, there was never any danger that OU was going to lose to one of the worst teams in FCS, but there was a question about whether or not OU would be ready to play, given the circumstances of the last two months in the college football world. They were certainly ready, and the ceiling that this team possesses was on clear display. You can't get too comfortable, though. I wish the number one takeaway from Saturday's game was how obvious and impressive the arm talent of Spencer Rattler is. And of course, we will beat that into the ground in this episode. Seriously, he was impressive. But still, I can't analyze this game without commenting on how obvious it was while watching that we were playing football in a pandemic. Nothing made that more obvious than the 20-plus OU players that missed the game for various COVID-related concerns. And unless you're subscribed to an OU site with a paywall, you would have had no idea those players would be missing until about 30 minutes before kickoff. The uncertainty surrounding that reality is an exceptionally difficult pill to swallow. Just listen to Lincoln Riley's voice when he describes the new COVID reality. He's exhausted. The only kind of exhaustion that comes with waking up every morning not knowing at all what challenges that day is going to present to you. It's not difficult to envision something like this greatly impacting a marquee matchup later in the season. And that's just not very fun at all. It sucks, actually. And I say all of this just to make this specific point that I think will serve the OU football team well, including any individual listening to this that could be struggling currently in their life. Do everything in your immediate power to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. The world will not slow down for you. The college football world will not slow down for you. Get your mind right now. What we saw happen on Saturday is going to happen numerous times over the course of this season. It's a cliche at this point, but the teams that handle that uncertainty the best are going to have the best college football teams in this extremely strange 2020 season. Start being comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's not going anywhere. I'm Grant Benson. This is West of Everest. Rattler play action. First snap of this drive. Looks deep. Wings it for Mims down the middle. He's got it. 10-5. Touchdown. Wow. Spencer Rattler's first career touchdown pass. Marvin Mims' first career catch. And his first career touchdown. I'd say it was a successful night in Norman last Saturday. Oklahoma did exactly what they were supposed to do against Missouri State, scoring 31 points in the first quarter and going on to win 48 to nothing. Toby Rowland on the call there in the intro today. Hey, everybody, I'm Lee Benson. You heard Grant at the top of the show with his opening take. We'll bring him back here in a second. First, I want to say thank you to all of you out there who listened to our super long mega podcast last week. It was our first episode in exactly five months. We weren't sure how many of you would come back to the show and listen. I got to say that I'm pleasantly surprised looking at the numbers. It would seem that the West of Everest listeners were definitely ready for Oklahoma football to be back. And that means a lot to us that you all have come back to the show after such a long layoff. So again, thank you for that. Now, most of you already know about the West of Everest Facebook page. 
If you haven't liked that page by now, go ahead and do that so you can get any and all show updates that we post. Earlier in the day, I posted a link to the Inside OU podcast put out by the Franchise Network here in Oklahoma. I jumped on with Brady Trantham on Sunday morning, and we talked about the Oklahoma-Missouri State game. You can find that link on the West of Evers Facebook page. Give it a listen. Follow along with Brady and Keegan's podcast if you're looking for some more Oklahoma football content. With that, time to bring back in Grant. All right, so if you've listened to that podcast at all, and maybe you haven't, uh, I've already talked a little bit about the game publicly. For Grant, you have not done that, so I'm dying for all of your hot takes today. You're dying for my hot takes. Well, are people going to be disappointed when kind of like my, my main takeaway from that game is that we can't really take much from it? Except for some, some stuff that was blatantly obvious, just in ter- like visually. Um, so we'll talk about Spencer Rattler. Obviously, you could see the talent just oozing off of him. Uh, there's some other guys who definitely passed the eye test, but other than that, uh, Missouri State is the worst football team OU has played in my years as a fan. That is very, very clear. That was a, a terrible football team. Well, you mentioned it in the opening take that you wanted to talk Spencer Rattler. We figured we'd go into detail with Spencer. Might as well do that right now off the top. His performance was about what we expected for the most part. You take away... Now, I... I didn't go back and fully rewatch everything, which I normally do, but even days later, I still haven't done it. Did he take one or did he take two sacks late in the game? I think he took two or in the half. I think he took two sacks. So I actually was just, I actually just uh, went back and rewatched the first half right before we, we got on here. And there was only one sack that he took. There was another apparent sack, but it was on, if you go back and, and watch the tape and I know, uh, I know Keegan uh, Raynaud uh, tweeted out a video about this earlier this week, too. Uh, but it was a clear draw, or it was an RPO of some sort that was just a bust by the offensive line on one of them. So uh, there was one there was one sack that he took kind of right before the end of the first half that was 100% on Rattler, 100%. And he just, he just kind of, he had, a, he had a nice pocket. He just sort of panicked and didn't step up. And that was about it. Other than that, I thought, in terms of pass protection, I thought they were fine. Um, but, you know, there, there were some things to, to iron out for sure on the offensive line. So, yeah, I mean, the reason I brought that up is just because that's the one kind of negative you can take away from Spencer Rattler is he got sacked that one time. And, I mean, it's Missouri State. It was late in the second half. He knew that he was probably about to be done playing and – uh, yeah, he held on to the ball a little bit longer, trying to make a play. So what? I mean, if that's the one thing you can point out about him that was kind of not great, that's a pretty darn good performance again, though against a defense and against a team that was really bad. But that's what he's supposed to do. And all the things we know about Spencer Rattler, or we, were, we thought we knew about Spencer Rattler, were displayed on Saturday night. Smooth, good mechanics, good pocket presence, the arm, the arm strength, and the accuracy was all there. And um, not that he would have been nervous or appear to be stressed out at all going up against a Missouri State defense. Uh, he, he looked to be calm and cool and collected and super chill, exactly what we were hoping to see from Spencer Rattler. Is that also what you took away from his performance? Yeah, he looked like the real deal. Looks completely in control. 
And um, and I, I don't I don't want to pick on him too much here. And I, I know we're talking about Spencer Rattler, so not to to get off topic, but just compare just how they look in terms of their nerves and how smooth they are. Compare Spencer Rattler and Tanner Mordecai. And it's it's just day and night. One guy is extremely comfortable, one guy is not. And I, I don't I don't think mm-hmm. what you saw from Spencer Rattler and how comfortable he looked and how in control he looked for a guy who was starting his first game in well over a year. I mean, uh, over 18 months was the last time he started a football game. That wasn't normal. That wasn't normal at all. And I think we're spoiled. We've gotten to the point where we kind of expect that. But, um, man, some of the throws that he made were were really impressive. And I know you tweeted out, and I know there's three throws that pretty much everyone has in mind, but they were all NFL throws. They were throws that a vast majority of college players cannot make. And... I don't know how you how you do not come away from that game being absurdly excited for Spencer Rattler. He he exceeded my expectations. I said I said in the preview podcast that on the field, like visually and physically, I kind of expected him to look like Trace McSorley. One of my worst takes ever. One of my worst takes ever. Spencer Rattler looked calm, in control, and smooth. He didn't. He didn't look like a freshman. He looked like an NFL player. I know that's crazy to say, but he was so much better than everyone else on that field. And I'm glad he's on. I'm glad he's on our team. Is basically all I can say. Those three throws you reference: first drive, the rollout pass to Jeremiah Hall, where he put it in a good spot for Hall to catch low and away. Uh, the second one. I'm not sure if this is the right order, but obviously the, the best throw of the night was the, the corner to Theo Weiss where Weiss, the ball just arrived right into his bread basket. There's 30, starters in the NFL who can't field. make that throw right now. And the thing is, I mentioned this before. I, I, may, have, I may have mentioned this on Brady's podcast. All, a ton of quarterbacks at every single level can luck into making incredibly great throws like that one, but the difference is consistency. And you throw in the Jeremiah Hall pass. You throw in that pass to Weiss. And what's the third one you're referencing? Is that is just maybe the, one of the deep the, balls? The, the, the one of, over the no. outside shoulder to Rambo that he dropped. Oh, oh yeah. An incompletion. That was his yeah, second was really best throw. throw of the night, I thought. Yeah, and I had that go out of my head because it wasn't a completed pass. But yeah, I remember because that was his first incompletion of the night. And it was a drop. And Rattler had... Uh, 14 he was 14 of 17 but two of them were drops that Rambo one and then uh, you can somewhat I don't know excuse I think it was Stogner who dropped one in the end zone I mean it was a bullet there wasn't a whole lot of touch behind uh, Rattler's pass to Stogner that he dropped in the end zone that was uh, a laser I'm but, actually uh, you know against I'm not going to give against Stogner good competition you I was gonna say I'm gonna not going to give Stogner competition, any you hope he catches that. he's got to catch that you know, you're right. The standard has to be higher here for Oklahoma and here on west of Everest. And sometimes I'm too nice. He's got to catch that ball. You're well, right. I mean, you got Austin Sogner had a lot of hype coming into this season. Um, and, you know, we talked about it briefly in the last episode. Physically, like we talked about, he definitely looked the part. Absolutely, he did. He looked like a man amongst boys out there. Um, he's got to make that catch at OU. Got to make that catch. Yeah, but, I, I agree. mean, it's I agree. not whatever it's it's like no it's not a huge deal i'm not like oh shame on you shame on you right so, yeah let's let's do five to ten minutes on stogner not making that yeah, catch the, the same you know, the, the, the not... same applies to charleston rambo cd lamb dropped dropped a touchdown pass in the in the season opener last year 
when there was no one within 30 yards of him. So it happens to the best of us. Stogner did look really good on the very first series. I think he caught the first pass from Spencer Rattler. And I know it's Missouri State, but didn't he kind of look like a mini Gronk when he yep. caught that ball and yep. shrugged off a tackler and picked up yards after the catch? He looked big and able to run, which is like I can I, I can definitely see a reality where it takes Stogner and Rattler maybe maybe half a season or a handful of games to get on the same page. But you know there's a stretch of games coming this season where Stogner is going to go like 150 and two touchdowns, 130 and two touchdowns, just in a row. It's going to happen this year. I, I think that's clear. I asked uh, Spencer Rattler after the game just about the fact that he and Jalen Hurts arrived on campus at OU around the same time, but Hurts obviously didn't have as much time to learn the offense as Spencer did, and just you know, how having that extra year helped him going into that game, and not surprisingly said it helped a lot, You know, learning from Jalen and, and going through all the reps last season, especially late last year. He said he got a lot more reps in practice and mentally going through those situations at practice. And then, you know, he mentioned that there wasn't any spring ball this, this past season, but then in fall camp, going through it all again, it just, he felt really comfortable. And I, not surprisingly, it's, it's just, it's, you have a guy who obviously has a lot more talent than a Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts had the experience by far on Rattler, but to Jalen Hurts' credit, or to defend him a little bit, he didn't have a full year plus another training camp like Spencer Rattler did to learn that offense. Jalen Hurts was thrown in and had to learn it in less than a year. Plus, he's not as talented of a thrower as Rattler. And early on in the year, last season, Hurts was a guy who was, was making some pretty good throws, but then as the season went on, he uh, showed that he was very limited. Whereas now with Spencer Rattler, he's got a full year under his belt. He showed the ability to make those, those deep passes. He looks downfield for explosive plays. He's got the ability to run a little bit as well. But he also has that talent to where you hope as the season progresses, he doesn't start to look limited like Jalen did in the, the middle part to last half of the year. Whereas Rattler, you hope that as the season progresses, he gets more reps, he'll actually start to become better and start to shine even more. So I think that's a huge difference in the two different quarterbacks that Oklahoma had last year. Uh, and I know you mentioned Spencer uh, – I'm sorry, you mentioned uh, Tanner Mordecai already. Yeah, it's just, it's just a different – uh, it just looks different whenever Tanner's out there compared to uh, when, when Spencer was out there. Yeah, obviously really excited for Rattler. And, of course, you can take all of this, you know, with as big of a grain of salt as you want based off of Missouri State. And, of course, things are going to change when the speed of the game is faster. You got guys throwing blitzes at you, disguised blitzes. How does he, how does he go through his progressions? Can he eliminate quickly? Uh, can he process information quickly? We're going to find out, but man, it's, he, did he look like someone back there who was concerned about that type of stuff? No, no, uh, not at all. He, he looked, he looked very much in control and that's, that's just not really normal. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a lot of great quarterbacks at OU and I've seen a lot of quarterbacks at OU that were just ordinary and not great. And you know, those ordinary and not great quarterbacks don't look anything like Spencer Rattler. They look a lot like Tanner Mordecai and Trevor Knight and Austin Kendall, um, and Blake Bell a lot of the times. Um, Spencer Rattler is a lot different. So, I, you know, I'm, this offense is his. I mean, he was, he was the clear alpha male on that offense. And so I, I think that's, uh, that's a really good sign that he's, he's, he's only spent one year on campus. 
and it looks like he already kind of commands that respect in the huddle. And you know what? That tends to happen when you are a, a bad mother, you know what? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and it, it's it's clear that that this guy is this guy has some sort of pedigree, and I'm excited to see to see it play out as the season goes on. And we're even like it's if if the status quo stays the same, we're likely not even really ever to see him in a difficult environment either. So, I mean, who know? We may not even see him full on in the ringer and, until who knows when. I'm not sure, but like I mean that that looked like a guy who was calm, cool, and control the entire time, and we'll see if he can keep it going. I hope he can because if he if he can, I mean that's like like we said the 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 ceiling of this offense was on full display. You're referencing obviously the fact that stadiums are not going to be full or probably not going to be full. So yeah, yeah. When he goes on the road, he's not going to face. Uh, yeah, okay. I just no. wanted to make that clear in case somebody you know. Those those of you out there missed that, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the weird thing about football in general in 2020, from college and the pros. I mean, there's no such thing as a home field advantage, it would seem, or it's a lot uh, less of an advantage than it used to be. So uh, we'll see how that plays out as the season goes on. Uh, how about Marvin Mims? He jumps onto the scene. He was in our intro. He his first catch as a Sooner goes for a touchdown, and we talked about him rather extensively in the big megapod about how he's somebody that all throughout camp and he came in early, he was in the spring about how he's, he's gotten a lot of praise and Dennis Simmons has liked what he's seen said he's a polished receiver coming out of high school. And in game one, it already seems like Marvin Mims is going to be potentially, I mean, he could be like, there's a, there's a world in which Marvin Mims is, Oklahoma's leading receiver this season. That's a that's a scorching go. take. When you got Theo Weiss and you got Charleston Rambo there as well. Should I should I, mean, I step in now with my with my full throated defense of Charleston Rambo? Well, I mean Rambo had a couple touchdown catches. He he was named player of the game at the stadium, which was kind of yeah, was a head scratcher considering everyone thought it should be Spencer Rattler. But it's not like Charleston Rambo didn't show up. He did. He looked just fine and he's going to get his, his uh he's going to get his yards and his catches uh you know charleston rambo is is there, going there, to be the leading receiver and the the featured receiver on this team i am very sure about that it all depends on the kind of rapport that spencer has with his receivers and if he's had great rapport and he's mainly been going to rambo throughout fall camp then yeah it'll probably end up being rambo but what if he hasn't what if what if he's been throwing to somebody else that we just don't know about? That's Maybe, the I don't know, but I look at, I, I just, I don't understand what people don't see when they look at Charleston Rambo. The guy is, the guy is long, he's extremely fast, he just runs past people consistently. I, I don't know what people, what other people are seeing. The guy, the guy's a clear NFL talent. I, I mean, I'm, the body type, the, you, get, you can't jam him at the line because he's so long, he's fast. I, I, he's, oh, I don't know about that. I, be- I, I think that would be a, a probably a, a criticism of him. He's he's not a very big guy. I think it, you get anybody. You could he's kind of slight of frame. I mean, he can you can knock that guy off routes all the time. I would say you can. Right, I, I would say you can. I, I would say he's maybe he could he could add an extra ten pounds of muscle. Maybe he's not small though. He's not a small guy at all. I don't think. Marvin Mims is I mean, small. Yeah, I, I like uh, I like his size. Uh, it's not that I don't like Charleston Rambo. It's just that I'm not as high on him as you are. 
Yeah, like I don't. He's not C.D. Lamb. He isn't. But I mean, he's he's a guy who's going to get drafted in the in the third round of the NFL draft. Maybe even like maybe the second round. Just l- look at his body type. Look how look how fast he runs. He catches everything mm-hmm. with his hands. Yeah, uh, it's he's he's going to be a guy who is who is going to blow away the pre-draft process. He's going to get drafted pretty high. I, I just. I, yeah, I just I have because I I have listened to other podcasts in, in in the wake of the game, and I feel like there were multiple ones where people were kind of poo pooing Charleston Rambo, and I just I don't understand what people aren't seeing. The he's he's the most uh, on the field. He's the most talented receiver on the field that OU has right now. Currently, yeah, I'm yeah I'm trying to put into words w- what you know, like maybe what other people aren't seeing, what I'm not seeing. I. To me, I think a lot of it stems from the latter half of 2018, 20, uh, 2019 with him, for the most part, disappearing. How much does that have to do with the offense changing a lot? Probably quite a bit. So I think that's factoring in. So it's probably not a fair criticism there. I'm certainly interested to see how he progresses within this offense with Spencer Rattler. Can he have more of a consistent 2020 season? catching the ball and on, honestly for me to me he just he looks like a guy who just catches go routes and then drags and that's kind of it that's kind of like what he does I, I and you know me I, I I'm not a big like I think the whole overpraise of Jerry Judy being the top receiver in the draft class most recently is that he's a great route runner I thought it was a very very bizarre I've never heard of the top receiver in a draft class being described by everybody as him being so great because he's a great route runner. I think in the NFL, certainly some people run routes better than others, but you can learn, you can improve. I want a guy that's a physical freak and can go, can go up, catch the ball, break tackles, big and strong. And to me, C.D. Lamb was that. And plus, I think C.D. Lamb is a, is a, is a fine route runner. I, I mean, I think he runs routes very well. So I, with Charleston Rambo, I guess I don't know how much of that is – me not thinking that he's a very good route runner, or maybe I should say I don't really care about that because I think eventually like, that is something that you can improve upon. If he has the physical skills, speed, strength, the ability to catch the ball in, in any kind of different ways, then I should be a lot higher on him. But for some reason, I, I, I just I, – I like the guy a lot. I just – I don't see him right now as like a number one type receiver. I just don't see I it. guess I don't – can you – outside of C.D. Lamb and – the best college receivers of all time. Can you tell me any prominent college receivers that ran a refined route tree? No, you can't. Everyone just ran the same freaking route over and over again. Everyone does. Nobody yeah. is that nobody's that refined in college. Even CD didn't run a ton of different routes last season. And so like I mean your your point's well taken with Rambo about him running crosses and go routes, but he's extremely difficult to defend on those two routes. And I, I'm just the, the way that he's able to separate from guys, his obvious long stride speed. Um, he's got very long arms. Like I've, I, I think we've seen numerous times his ability to be able to keep tacklers away from him with his arms. He did that in the Texas game numerous times last year. Uh, he's, he, he's a guy who still needs to put it all together, but I think he is suffering just kind of from the fact that he came in the same recruiting class as CeeDee Lamb and he's not CeeDee Lamb who a lot of people think is the best receiver in OU history. And I think there's a good argument for that. Charleston Rambo is not CeeDee Lamb, but no one really is. So, I don't know. I'm just kind of just be appreciative of what you have. And Rambo is good. 
Like I've he 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 will be the second best receiver in the Big Twelve at the end of the season, statistically and consensusly. All right, any other receivers you want to talk about? I know Theo Wee said that you know, he made that great catch from Spencer Rattler's ball, but well, we uh, talk about Mems because we first... went into ra- to, to Rambo. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, no, like yeah, I, this is none of this is to take anything away from Mems. He's going to be a star at OU. Um, I don't. The guy was. I, I did look it up. The guy. Um, I, I I couldn't confirm whether or not he's the career leader in, in Texas high school history. But he is the single season leader in, in yards ever in Texas. So, and I know the guy was, I, I know he, he wasn't a five-star guy. He wasn't like in, he was like maybe in the top 150 in the country in terms of recruits. But yeah, you see, you see it there. He is refined. He is ready right away to play college football. And you can tell a guy like that, the reason why he wasn't a big-time five-star recruit was because of his body type. You can tell. He looks like a freshman out there in terms of body type but he's still running past guys. He looks like a much more elite athlete than everyone else on the field. But you can tell he's still kind of gangly and, and, has, and has a ways to go physically. That's why he wasn't a five-star recruit. But the production was there. It looks like just kind of his savviness was there. Um, the way that he kind of squirted in and out of blocks and on those punt returns, it looks like he's going to be a weapon in that regard. Um, Marvin Mims is going to be one of the most decorated receivers in OU history. I'm excited to see where he goes from here. Just planting the flag right now. Yeah, well, I, I'm looking health, forward to health seeing. Health pending. I mean, the guy, the yeah, guy, yeah. the guy was a major part of the offense in his very first career game. He's gonna be, he's gonna yeah, be one that's of the most so decorated receivers ever. Yeah, it's just it's re- it's refreshing when you're like, oh, this is this is kind of cool. I mean, it's this guy who we've heard a good amount about comes out in game one and is a huge part of the offense, and then seeing him return punts is great. I will withhold a whole lot of judgment until I see him return punts against non-Missouri State special teams punt teams, but uh, I mean he found a lot of you know found a lot of yardage, found a lot of running room, and that's cool. I'm glad that a player like that is being put in those situations immediately. It shows the kind of trust that he has already gained from the coaching staff, and in such a weird such a weird year I mean how important was it for Marvin Mims to be there in the spring I know they didn't have spring ball but just being around the team I'm sure helped a lot in building up that trust and that carries into fall camp and um yeah looking forward to seeing his progression there was a um there was a there was a completion to Mims I know he only had three catches but it was at the end of the first half and it was for a first down on third down uh it was kind of a, a bit of a hitch route um and i think i think what that was and this isn't my idea I, I i took this from from somebody who broke it down on twitter um ian boyd who i've mentioned before on this you can look go look him up on twitter um he was claiming that that route because it was mims in the slot that that was actually an option route and that one of the options on there was the slot fade uh was a slot fade and um on that play, Mims broke off that that slot fade route for a hitch, and Rattler hit him in perfect timing, and that's that's a that's a really good sign that maybe they're on the same page already. So, um, and I think that that's a big deal in this league, especially identifying matchups that you have, especially in the slot, and then running option routes off of that. And if you are on the same page as your quarterback, it's nearly indefensible. 
as long as you as long as you diagnose the correct coverage and the correct defense beforehand. Uh, that's it's not defensible, and, and that's what like you saw that uh, going back to the national championship game two seasons ago when Clemson obliterated Alabama. That's what you saw over and over and over again from Trevor Lawrence and and his group of NFL receivers, and Bama couldn't do anything about it. So. I, it's it's it, it's fun stuff. It, it's fun that they're so young, and it looks like maybe they've picked up on on kind of those complicated concepts. I'm talking to Theo Weiss Tuesday of this week, he talked about how Spencer Rattler keeps him after practice. He pays very close attention to detail, wants his receivers to understand what they're doing in the offense. He just he wants the best for all of these players, and those are things that maybe a lot of quarterbacks do. It's just nice to get that confirmation when you're hearing that about a player that we know, Spencer Rattler, who we, we think can be really, really good. He's not slacking. He's doing all the things he's supposed to do. He's kind of going outside the box, going the extra mile, it would sound like, at least early on in his career to maximize his ability and the ability of his teammates because they haven't had as much prep time. It's been a, a weird lead up to this season. They need as many reps as they can get. And so it's just good to hear that Theo Weiss was describing Rattler that way and saying that he's taken, uh, he's taken this very seriously within this offense. And so maybe that's why uh, you know, a guy like Mims was able to be on the same page as Spencer Rattler in the game and, and make the correct decision when it comes to an option route. Or you know, maybe it's because they've been working on it so much, whether it be in practice or even outside of practice, going on uh, with things on their own. That's pretty neat. And to me, I think you can also look at this as evidence, perhaps, that uh, the the culture that Lincoln Riley is trying to install in this in this program is is taking hold. That's why you bring in a Jalen Hurts. They even said it. They they said they brought in Jalen Hurts because he's a culture changer. And um, I don't know, like every, a lot of people watch that Spencer Rattler and the QB one thing, and he kind of came off as a douchebag. You know, I, I think <laughs> let's just say it. He he did. He came off as a cocky young kid, and perhaps this is evidence that. As soon as he was inserted into this culture, he just he had to be part of the culture, and he, he understands what is what's expected of you, and I think that's pretty cool. That's that's maybe something that you can fall back on in a super weird season like this when you're dealing with COVID and you're dealing with all the things that come with that. If you have a culture that's already established, that's hard to deny once your feet are on the ground, actually there. Man, I mean, it's probably incalculable how how valuable that is, especially in a in a super weird season like this. So, um, maybe look at that as as a good sign. Was that his senior year or was that his junior year that that documentary? Senior do you remember? Year. Do, do you, so it's been what? I mean, it's been now. This is two years since then, since his senior year. So, it I think that age group, you know, high school, college. You know, two years, especially if you get into a certain culture or you have different uh, role models or different adults and coaches around you that can change your behavior a little bit or influence your behavior differently. I think kids can grow quite a bit in a short amount of time. I think when you get older and older and older, it's a lot harder to change because when you get to a certain age, you kind of just are who you are. Oh, yeah. People very rarely ever change. Uh, but when you're a kid, you still have room to grow. You still have, especially when you're a teenager. And so you know, who knows how much he's actually grown. It would seem like maybe a lot from the outside, you know, outside looking in. It would seem that maybe he has grown quite a bit in just two years and uh, one full year in Oklahoma's program and, and going into now his second year. So interesting. Outside of the receiver room, let's talk about the running game. And if you're going to 
criticize one part, aside for the, the random sack that Spencer Rattler took, if you're going to criticize any part of Oklahoma's team on Saturday, it would be the running game. Uh, when The running backs, which was just Marcus Major, uh, Seth McGowan, and Todd Hudson late in the game, they combined to average under four yards per carry, 3.8 yards per carry. When you have Oklahoma's offensive line, who we all assume is going to be very good this season, going up against a bad Missouri State team, when you're not able to push the pile like they normally do, that's – I'm not going to say it's concerning because they still won the game by a lot and they didn't necessarily need to run the ball down their throats, but it's not great. You would have hoped that they would have averaged, you know, five, six, seven yards a carry if they wanted to, and they didn't. So uh, that's the, the one critique you could probably have. Now, Oklahoma's offensive linemen, they were not at full strength. So how much did that factor in? It definitely factored in a little bit, I would say. And then also not having Ramondre Stevenson out with the suspension stuff, which we can talk about a little bit later. And then T.J. Pledger being out as well. So the, the entire running game was shorthanded and did not perform all that well with the exception of Seth McGowan uh, looking really good in his Oklahoma debut, Grant. So your overall thoughts on the running game? You know, I, I, obviously I would have liked to see them do a better job running the ball. In the first half, there very clearly wasn't even much of, a, of, of an effort to get the run game established. The first half seemed very clearly like a showcase for Spencer Rattler. Riley wanted to get him in a rhythm, wanted him to get uh, get the ball downfield, and you know, mission accomplished. Um, but still, yeah, you you would you would like to see them imposing their will on the ground, especially against a team like Missouri State. I do want to say, if there is if there is one kind of group of Missouri State where they have some promise, they had some decent players in their front seven, guys who very clearly have the body type. Of, of like a power five program. And they, they did have some power five transfers on defense as well. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. But I think, I think Missouri State did have some guys with ability in the front, in the front seven. Still, you, you would have liked to see the offensive line perform a little better. Um, I hope Adrian Ely is just at left tackle for an emergency. I think he's better than Swenson there. Like hit, the ceiling is higher. But he's clearly not comfortable there. I think you know, and and so you, you hope that the the two freshmen that missed uh, Harrison and Wilkins, like I said last week, Bill Bedenboe wouldn't have made that switch unless he felt like that it was that it was the right thing to do. Um, I I, I hope we can see both of those guys and in, in you know in a week and a half when they play Kansas State, and I hope we see Ely back at right tackle. Um, saw a lot of Eric Swenson and. He I, he didn't look like he improved at all. But still, I, you know, I think there's a big grain of salt. We have no idea how together the offensive line has been throughout camp. It's very possible that this group that was on the field for the game on Saturday has like only practiced with each other a couple times fully. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't know mm-hmm. where everything stands in terms of continuity, you know, um, and still it, it's... Bill Beendwell offensive lines in terms of the run game, there is there is a bit of a history there of them not getting it fully in gear and going until, you know, three or four games into the season. So um, I, I think it's okay to have some patience in this regard because we did see some instances where the offensive line was overwhelmingly dominant as well. So uh, baby steps, let's see what they look like against uh, what is a fairly experienced defensive line in a week and a half against Kansas State. 
um, then I think we'll be able to make some more uh, determinations there. But also, who knows? It could look totally different uh, with with Anton Harrison out there and, and them being at full strength. So, um, and that's what you hope. Uh, but other than that, um, I guess really the only other hot take. Hold that on I have, one one second, one second. I, I want to address. I'm glad you brought up the history of Bill Beatenbow's offensive line, especially in the last three, four, five years, about how it's a, a slow starting unit, but then by early mid October it starts to really get into gear and they play better and better every single game. How many times, I mean, this, since we've been doing this podcast, that's been the theme of the Oklahoma offensive line ever since 2017, has it not? That, and, and you, you basically educated me on this early on when we first started doing this podcast because I had checked out on Oklahoma football for the mid-2000s. I hadn't really been paying attention much. And uh, you said, yeah, ever since Beat and Bo's been there, that's kind of been what the offensive line has done. And that's what we've seen ever since I started paying a lot more attention in 2017 when this podcast began. And I asked Creed Humphrey about that on Tuesday. And I, you know, I said, knowing that in the past, since you've been here, that your offensive line group, as the season progresses, you get to about October, mid-October, you all start to play even better and better game to game. Kind of knowing that, having that in the back of your mind, does that help after the way things went on Saturday? And Creed said, well, obviously we, want, we don't want to have a situation where we're starting slow like that. We want to play up to our standard right off the bat. But in this shortened season, we don't have time to gel that slowly. We got to do this right now. There's a sense of urgency. And so it's good to hear him say that, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's going to all of a sudden be good next or two weeks from now when they play Kansas State. That standard, the, 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 the situation of them getting better by midseason whenever they start to, to get the group together and, and there's more camaraderie there, then I think it's going to happen again. I think we're going to see this offensive line gel and become really good, barring any unforeseen circumstances with people being out. I think, I think um, a lot of this hinges on what Anton Harrison looks like. Um, offensive lines, you know, a lot of the time are determined by, you know, how strong they are on the edges. And I think, I think they're pretty strong on the right edge with Adrian Ely, if that's where he's going to be. Um, but I mean, you saw how good this offensive line was when Orlando Brown was anchoring it on the left side. And I, and I said on the last podcast, if you want to put stock in that depth chart, I know a lot of people don't, but I thought it was significant that Bill Biedenboe decided to put a true freshman there with no reservations whatsoever. That is telling me that he thinks that guy is way too good to sit on the bench. And if Bill Biedenboe thinks a true freshman is way too good to sit on the bench, I cannot wait to see how good that guy is. Uh, because it's not, that's not normal. There's been some extremely good college offensive linemen that have come through this program in the last five years. And not a single one of them, except for Drew Samia, started as a true freshman. Not of, not, none of them started on the left side as a true freshman. So... Um, I think it, like yeah. I think an offensive line can gel extremely quickly if you don't have to worry at all about anything on the left side, and I think when you put a true freshman there at a program like Oklahoma, honestly, that is my expectation for Anton Harrison. That may be unfair, but this is so irregular that I I have to think this guy is an unbelievable stud. All right, so before I cut you off to talk more about the offensive line, you were, I think, transitioning into the running backs. Is that, does that sound about right? Yep, yep. I was going to uh, 
I don't know. Yeah, like I think um, with the running backs, I, I agree. Seth McGowan looked really, really good. Looks great. Definitely a guy who is going to be uh, a factor in this program for the next three or four years. Um, I, you know, I'm not ready to say that even right now that I would prefer him over TJ Pleasure. I don't think I would, honestly. Um, but I, 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 I saw a good ceiling there from McGowan, a guy who definitely has burst. He's very, very decisive into the hole, which I think is his best, his best quality. Uh, he's decisive into the hole, and he gets there very quickly. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm excited to see more of Seth McGowan. I, I texted this to you, and I know a lot of people have thrown out there that he looks a lot like Rodney Anderson, and I, I, I kind of get that comparison, although I think body type and physically he's nowhere close to Rodney Anderson. Um, to me, yeah, Rodney Anderson at this point, the last time we saw him, pictures of him, it looked like he, like his biceps and his his legs are just freakish. Yeah. I mean, it's like he's had plenty of time to hit the weights because unfortunately he's been so injured in his career. Uh, so he's been doing a lot of weight room stuff, I bet. But yeah, I mean, man, if that guy could ever just stay healthy, he's just a huge, <laughs> huge running back out there. And I'm sure the speed whenever he's healthy is still there. But yeah, he Seth McGowan did, does not have the body that Rodney Anderson has been able to get, especially ever since he left Oklahoma. Yeah. He was big at Oklahoma, but he, he put on even more muscle in the pros. Yeah, And, and that's not like, yeah, and. Like McGowan is clearly a guy. You look at his body type. He he's going to put on some more muscle and some more weight at OU, and he's going to be a guy that is probably going to consistently be able to run through those arm tackles. Um, but yeah, like you're obviously excited about his burst, his willingness to catch the ball out of the backfield, and on that GT counter, he was he was just much better than Marcus Major at picking the correct angles in the correct hole. Um, you know I. I, I went back again watching the first half here, Lee. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know I don't want to get into Marcus Major yet. I, my comparison for uh, for Seth McGowan. Um, I think I think the comparison is I want to go to another prominent college player who kind of flamed out in the NFL. He reminds me a lot in terms of how he looks and body type to T.J. Yeldon at Alabama. He looks a lot like him coming out of as a and T.J. Yeldon played as a true freshman at Alabama. Um, in the very first game, came on in a very similar way that McGowan did. I just think they look a lot alike physically and how they move, um, and that's that's good. T.J. Yeldon was an outstanding college player, and I and I think Seth McGowan has the pedigree. He looks like he has the capability of being an outstanding college player. So, uh, do you have I, any other thoughts on him? I was going to say I agree with you about his his best quality. To this point seems to be his decisiveness and his ability to hit the hole quickly as we talked about on the big mega preview season preview podcast as I had thought more about Kennedy Brooks that was my biggest critique of him he just didn't have that burst and getting through the hole and with Seth McGowan he's got it he absolutely has it to me TJ Pledger is going to get his opportunity when he comes back. He's definitely going to get that that chance. He was the number one guy in the depth chart. And a lot of it is because of him being a veteran. He's he's he knows this offense. He's earned his chance to to make plays in this offense. And whenever he's avail, you know, available to play, which uh I believe it'll be Kansas State, at least we hope for right now. I think he might have tweeted something over the weekend saying that he'll be back, or he, I think he even said the 26, which is the K-State game. He'll be back. So he'll get the chance, but I mean, Seth McGowan in his debut did things Saturday that in all the different times we've seen TJ Pledger play, TJ Pledger hasn't looked like that at all. So to me, what it tells me is that I think McGowan 
And whenever Ramondre Stevenson comes back, because he's obviously the, the, the top guy in this running back room based on what we saw last season, it's probably going to be Seth McGowan and Ramondre Stevenson in the, the middle portion to latter portions of the season with sprinkling in TJ Pledger here and there to, to give some breathers. Uh, and, and, and less pleasure takes off. But I mean, again, I, I, what we saw from McGowan, at least from my perspective, we've never seen from TJ Pledger in, in his limited action at Oklahoma. And when it comes to Marcus Major, I know you want to talk about him a little bit. Yeah, it, it, to me, he it's tough to bury him after one game because that was the, the biggest role he's ever had. He led the team in carries. He had 11 carries, but only for 31 yards. And he just... He just looks like a depth piece at this point, and I know we both agree on this. We talked about this off, off the air. You, you can kind of go into more details, but uh, I, I, I'm going to qualify it a bit. A bit unfair to just call him that after his first start. We'll give him some more carries. We'll give him some more action, but my immediate reaction to that game is Seth McGowan was, was by far the best running back on the field, and I think uh, he can only get better. And if everything plays out, availability works out for everybody and, and the, the roster's intact, I think, again, by the, the middle of the season when Ramondre Stevenson comes back, when he's supposed to come back, I think it'll be a two-headed monster of Stevenson and Seth McGowan. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's appropriate to qualify it. Um, and I want to do that, too, because, yeah, you're right. You don't want to bury Marcus Major. Rodney Anderson in the first few games of 2017 also looked just like a depth piece and uh, – a complete afterthought as well. That is a very good point. So, um, you know, I you don't want to bury him, like you said, right away. But having that been said, if if we only have this game to go on for Marcus Major, uh, you know he he didn't look great. He 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 looked like he had he's got a long way to go to be to be a, a high level college running back. To me, man, he looked like a less explosive version of Abdul Adams. I you know I just hmm. the if 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 this is the only game I got to go off of the recruiting services that made him a three star recruit when everyone in Oklahoma was talking about how great he is the recruiting services were right he he's I think he was a four star and at least one of them yeah there's there were some there are some runs um in in the first half where the offensive line set up the blocking perfectly and he just went the wrong way. Uh, there, there were there were a couple occasions just off the top of my head that he would have had chunk plays with just one correct cut to the opposite direction, and that's where the play wanted him to go, set off on the blocks, and he just wasn't able to execute it. So you know I, and also you you don't see a lot of the explosion that was promised. But like I said, you qualify it as in maybe sometime like it's OU's running game sometimes can be highly technical. It is about angles. It's about picking the right spots. Um, it's about it's about working with your offensive linemen and, and you know and maybe Major still just has a long way to go there, but it kind of looks like Seth McGowan already understood all of those concepts, while Marcus mm-hmm. Major is trying very difficultly or difficultly is is trying very hard uh, to still figure those out. Is what it looks uh, you like. You know what? I, I was gonna. I was texting you during the game because uh, I was up in the seventh level. Weirdly, I was the, the game day experience, which we haven't even talked about. Not sure, not sure many people care, but it didn't change much for me. I normally am at the very top of the stadium shooting from up top because I, I like to be up there to see the whole field. 
So aside from having to wear a mask the entire time, for me, everything was pretty much normal for normal games. But we were texting uh, late in the game, and I'm just on the roster right now. I want to get this right. <laughs> I mean, I thought, I mean, this guy is teeny tiny and is obviously not going to get a whole lot of play because if he did in like real one-on-one, like ones versus ones, he would get killed probably. But redshirt freshman Todd Hudson looked to be more explosive and more in control of seeing his blockers and like finding running room I thought then major and I'm not sure how much of the game you watched deep into the fourth quarter but Hudson had some really strong runs where he was breaking tackles and looked pretty confident for a guy who's 5'5 188 which again he's come on he's, he's obviously he's like a walk-on I believe he's, he's not going to get time but I mean just seeing him he looked like he was more kind of in tune with the offense than than Marcus so I mean I know he was I think banged up a bit last season you know, maybe that put his development a little bit behind uh, I, I know he's a great kid everyone around Oklahoma City wants him to do well and you know maybe he will maybe he'll bounce back and play a lot better against Kansas State but at the same time you, you still got to I mean he got like he he kind of had an opportunity to be showcased a little bit against like a really crappy team and he you know he he ran for three yards a carry less than three yards a carry yeah so yeah, Not and great. and there there were yards there for the taking for him that he he just missed he just missed the open. Yeah. So hey, maybe it was just a bad game. Maybe he is still struggling to pick up the mental concepts. Maybe Todd Hudson does not struggle with that. But like you said, maybe that guy would struggle with getting killed if he got a bunch of carries, you know, against against FBS right. programs. But it's yeah, you know, I. I I'm not worried about the running backs because I think you can just kind of hand it off to Seth McGowan at this point if no one else is there, and they'll be okay. But if they get to a point where they have to rely on Marcus Major, that's they're probably going to throw it 60 times in that game, um, and especially against a Big 12 team. If, if the Marcus Major that we saw on Saturday is, is the real Marcus Major, and I hope it's not. I hope it was just a bad game, not, you know, not in sync with the offensive line, but... I don't know, man. I, I didn't. There were other guys who who got who got on there, and they like kind of flashed with their athletic ability. And Marcus Major did not. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. The last thing with the offense is I think we should talk about who was in, who was out. I mean, because a big part of this game was players missing, and. I was going through the roster before the podcast, just making sure that I had all these names correct. So in case you're listening to this and, and you've heard like, oh, yeah, all these guys were out for Oklahoma, but you haven't really heard each individual name or you're you're curious. This is the list that I kind of came up with. And you can add in some, uh, you know, fill in the blanks if I'm missing anybody that's notable on offense. We talked about Anton Harrison. We talked about Stacy Wilkins. Uh, Stacy Wilkins was actually announced pregame at the stadium as the starter at left tackle, which was thinking, oh, okay, well, Harrison's out. And then it ended up being Ely at left tackle, and Stacey Wilkins wasn't even there. <laughs> so uh, that was weird. Uh, Andrew Rame, he was missing, didn't play, uh, wasn't out there. Another, He's the other true freshman offensive lineman that's gotten a lot of talk in, in pre -cam uh, preseason camp from Bill Biedenboe and other players on OU. Uh, we talked about T.J. Pledger missing. Uh, Braden Willis was not there. It was just Stogner and Jeremiah Hall. Uh, obviously, Ramondre Stevenson, because of the suspension, he was out. Uh, Obi Obialo was not there, and neither was Drake Stoop. So that 
position group on the depth chart, those two guys were not available. Any other offensive players, whether it's on the depth chart or not, that I'm missing that that you know did not were not available for that game, Grant, or did I cover it all? The one, the one guy I would I would throw out there that I didn't see that I was kind of curious, EJ and Doma Ogar. I didn't see him at all. Um, he's an offensive. I believe line. he's I, not on the. I, I kind of expected. Yeah, I believe to he's not him. on the depth chart. But I was. Let's see. I'll, I know he wasn't on the depth chart, but kind of like I, still a lot of people on the offensive line still played. Um. So I, I I'm assuming I'm assuming Endoma Ogar was probably out for COVID related reasons. Yeah, I'm looking at the participation sheet right now in the box score, and he's not on there. So he was also unavailable. And he's a guy he he's a guy who played last year in mop up duties. So I I figured, you know, he would play in this game. But if he didn't, that means he wasn't there. So um, mm-hmm. I think that's one other guy. But yeah, you go through that list, Lee, and those are guys that are dotted on the two deep. Those are guys, all of those guys. We're going to see a lot of all of those dudes this year. So, um, except, you know, we don't know when Ramondre is going to be back, but um, uh, obviously see a ton of him when we get back. God, can you imagine this offense at full strength with Ramondre Stevenson? Oh, my God. And it'd be nice if Kennedy Brooks was still available as well. Add that depth. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I'm so high on Ramondre. Like, that guy is... And you were you were you were high on him from the beginning, going back to the pre pre workouts, the summer of twenty nineteen. I mean, you're all over Ramondre Stevenson, and, and and you look really good. Yeah, I, I just he's the guy. The guy is a clear, just a clear stud. He is massive. He is smooth, and he's somehow extremely fast with breakaway speed. And he's like two hundred and fifty pounds. It's he's like Derrick Henry. Like I, I don't. I mean, probably not quite there yet, but they're the same size, and they're probably they probably run just as fast. So, well, I'm probably for yeah. Well, I'm probably forgetting a lot of other offensive stuff, but I have a couple more offensive notable things just for fun. Uh, <clears throat> credit to Seth McGowan; he was the first Oklahoma true freshman running back to score two touchdowns in his Oklahoma debut since Kewan Jones in 2002 against Tulsa. So, going way back there. Was it, uh, and, is that like true, did you say true freshman? Yes. Okay, I was going to say, DeMarco Murray had like five touchdowns in his debut, but. Yeah, true freshman, so first year in the program, and the other offensive notable that I wanted to bring up that it's more for you and me, Grant, that was the first time that Oklahoma has scored 31, at, le- at least 31 points in the first quarter since 2008. And you're thinking to yourself, 2008, we were at Oklahoma that season. We know all about that year. And I was in my head thinking like, huh, I wonder, let's see, which game was it? Don't tell me. I was me. going through. Do you know which game it was? I have ideas. I'm assuming it, uh, actually, yeah, I have a really good idea. At Kansas State. Oh. Nope. Really? So was it Texas A&M at A&M? Or was it at That's, home against Nebraska? At home against Nebraska. The game, the only home game that you and I couldn't go to. Did not go to, yeah. Yeah. I so. actually, uh, I, I think I have watched, uh, like, I, I've obviously watched highlights of that game. I've watched it, you know, in full, like, on recording or on TV since then. Um, I think I remember the first time that I watched that in its entirety, and it was years after the season. The biggest thing that stuck out to me watching that game was how freaking dominant Indomitian Sue was. I remember. 
and how OU <laughs> how in that game OU basically did everything just away from him, and it worked because they were awesome. But you could tell that they were making a very clear, uh, you know, effort to get as far away from Indomitian and Sue as humanly possible. I think that's kind of cool. I'm just thinking we're talking about the 2008 team briefly. Yeah. That was 12 years ago. And I know people that listen to this podcast are some, some of you are probably older than us have been. And I know because we've heard, we've got emails from listeners that, that remember college football and, you know, the New Year's Day, the bowl set up for that. And, and we've heard people enjoyed that setup. Anyways, point being, can you imagine, think back to like, I don't know, 2010, when obviously we were following OU football then. And we heard some jerks talking about the 1998 season. We'd probably be like, who cares? It's like before Bob Stoops. Like, who ca- shut up about the 1998 season. Nobody cares. Or like go back to 2000 and you heard some jerks talking about the 1988 OU team. We'd be like, shut up. Turn the page, man. So that's us now. We're, yeah. we're, ta- we're the old guys talking about the old OU. That's so weird. It's, it's different so weird though. You can, this era is different. Like it's... I, I think one no, no, of the that's reasons, what they said. I, that's I, what those jerks back then probably said too. No, but it, no, it is different now because you. There's a reason why I kind of feel like every qualifier. It seems like it, every program, if you throw out stats, a lot of the qualifiers are all since the year 2000. One because it's a new decade, and two just because we are in an era where everything is available. You can go on YouTube right now and essentially find the full game for every OU game that has been played since like 1999. And that's absurd. It's, it's just a lot easier to go back um, mm-hmm. and see that stuff. And it still blows my mind when you, you go back and you see old stuff on YouTube and it's like, it's, it's like potato quality, even though you were watching it in, in crystal clear high definition in 2008. But it was like... Yeah, that's bad. That, that means that they uploaded some really bad, high, bad yeah, quality true. files. <laughs> it sucks, yeah. It's really hard to find a good copy... Uh, in high definition of OU Texas Tech from 2008, which is disappointing. Um, yeah, because in 2008 there was HD was very much alive and well. Every TV was HD, so I mean you should. <laughs> it was shot in high definition. We have it. I mean, you go back to 2000. I think 2003-04 is kind of like the games should be found in HD. All of them. I mean, it, it existed back then. Man, I could talk. Um, I yeah. could talk about that 2008 team for just hours and hours and hours that's <laughs> i love that that's i've said it that's by far my favorite ou team of all time um i i just well yeah well this is not the day for it i know but still it's it's always fun to to wax nostalgic about that team i uh the the most talented team in ou history maybe the most snake bit team in ou history too it sucks yeah. What could have been? What could have been? All right, let's turn the page over to the Oklahoma defense on Saturday. Uh, Sooners look more than ready to go. They, they wanted to hit somebody new. I know you talked about it a little bit in your opening take, just about how ready Oklahoma looked. Uh, seven straight three and outs to start the game. Nine tackles for loss. Four sacks. Only forced one turnover, but at least it, it, you know they forced one. They got an interception. DTY got one. The defense... It uh, was against a really bad offense, against an offense that you talked about, Grant, I think in the, the big mega season preview pod, and you brought up Bobby Petrino, and I, I do remember him saying this in his, his pregame media availability, saying that the offensive line from Missouri State is, is still a work in progress, so uh, the Oklahoma front seven 
more specifically the defensive line, kind of got to tee off on him a little bit. And the entire unit did exactly what they were supposed to do. And thank goodness they kept it up throughout the game and got out of there without allowing any points. The first Oklahoma shutout since 2015 and the first under Alex Grinch. I'm not sure how much we want to go details of the defense. I just think they played really well. And, I mean, I know there's individual players we could talk about, but I'll stop talking and let you jump in to, to go whichever direction you want to go. They did what they needed to do. I would have been irrationally upset if they did not shut that team out. It would have... Uh, I don't think it would have been irrational. I think it would have been totally fair to, to be upset. That, that, uh, that team was terrible. I, I just... Man, that offense was... That offense was, was going to struggle against air. Um, I just, their quarterback was awful, man. He was terrible. Like I, you can like athleticism. And he's a guy sure. they really like. I, he's, he's a transfer. I think Bobby Petrino like had to recruit him more than once. That I, guy I, I, yeah, so. was not at all ready to play college football, a college football game. Like in terms of just mm. development or you, you can see like he was a good enough athlete to be on the field with Oklahoma. Like you could see that, but. In terms of playing quarterback, man, that guy sucked. He sucked. <laughs> um, yeah, and granted, he he wasn't he wasn't given a lot of help. He wasn't. He wasn't. No. So you know, I. But still, yes, I I am glad that they shut them out and they largely looked dominant doing it. Um, you know, there's there's really I I don't have a ton of like thought. I mean, there's there's kind of some some thoughts that I want to expand on just about certain players. Um. Because I, I think, I mean, I, I think the person that I, is the story of the defense from the first game is Isaiah Thomas. Um, he looks like a guy who has, and we talked about it in the in the Megapod, is he going to be a guy who takes that next step? Because they're kind of counting on him to do it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you can definitively say anything based off of the offense that they just that they just faced. But he certainly has the look of a guy who has who has the mental capacity and has definitely the mindset of taking that next step. He looked like a guy out there who understood what is expected of him and, and kind of how important he probably is to the first half of this season. And that, that excites me. And he's fired up. You could tell. He was, he was out there. He was dominating. He dominated. He was shooting gaps. He couldn't really be blocked. And that's, that's nice to see. It's enough for me to think, at least, at least put the seed, plant the seed in my head, that maybe in the first, it's looking like first five games without Ronnie Perkins, and now without Jalen Redmond, that maybe they're, they're going to be okay there. They might be okay. Because maybe Isaiah Thomas, someone like him, has emerged. And you know what? Leron Stokes looked okay, too. For a guy who... See, I, I agree with... Yeah. See, I agree with you about Thomas. I think, generally, anybody who watched that game, I think that the two biggest defensive players who stood out are Isaiah Thomas and Brian Asamoa. Asamoa... Stood out from the very very beginning. He ended up leading the team with seven tackles. Now, surprisingly, Isaiah Thomas only had two tackles. I would have guessed he had a lot more than that. Uh, he, he had a nice tackle for loss, I think, in the second quarter or so. But, yeah, he looked strong. I, I, I'd say those are the two players who stood out. You could say that uh, it was nice to see Brendan Radley-Hiles get that sack. Good to see him going after a quarterback very rare I, I think maybe a couple times last year he, he was brought Mr. Dependable I, I, I think that was probably more of like a, an option type situation blitz with them which is he probably had, not yeah, the I most think, precise I, way of I think on that play on that play the quarterback was his responsibility because yeah, okay, he was yeah, very he very decisive on that sack yeah yeah and he looked good 
uh, you know, getting, uh, getting the interception from DTY looked good. Uh, the defensive backs didn't get a whole lot of test in the game because the throwing game really wasn't in, in, in existence from Missouri State. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'd say the, the two players that stood out the most to me just in my initial watch up top, you know, shooting the game in a, a, a tight fashion was Isaiah Thomas and uh, Brian Asamoah. And I thought Deshaun White had a couple of nice plays as well. Oh, actually, yeah, I actually have notes here. <laughs> I was going to say, I, if there was anyone on the defense I literally did not notice at all, it was Deshaun White. So that's what, yeah. Um, I think he had two sacks. Really? Hmm. Uh, he had one and a half. One and a half sacks. Oh, yeah, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, on, on the blitz. I, Granted, Brian Mead should have uh, gotten the sack on the first one because he hit the quarterback and just then he tried to strip the ball and then uh, Deshaun White cleaned it up. So, yeah, I don't. Deshaun White got a half sack for that one. I think I mentioned something on. I mentioned this on, on, on the last podcast because I heard, you know, you know, Teddy and Gabe were talking about it on theirs. The way that Teddy Lehman was talking about David Aguebu, as in that he had already pretty much locked up that middle linebacker spot. And, you know, obviously Deshaun White started, but Deshaun White is not going to be a starting linebacker for the entirety of this season. It is going to be Aguebu and Asamoah. There, that is, that's pretty clear to me. I, I don't. Deshaun White just is not, he's nowhere near as explosive or athletic as Brian Asamoah. And David Igwebu, just look at the guy, that is an NFL player. He looks like Kenneth Murray. <laughs> David Igwebu, I don't know what he did in the offseason. I think he might have eaten CeeDee Lamb. Him and because Benito now he's wearing num- <laughs> look completely yeah. different. And Igwebu is now wearing number two. The first, I, when I was looking down on the field in pregame warmups, and I saw number two. I like, is that? Did C.D. Lamb just just eat an entire jar of steroids? Oh no, it's David Ogbuebu now. He's huge. I'm looking at the West of Evers Facebook page, and Hunter has a comment saying that he thought Ogbuebu gives him some heavy Torrance Marshall vibes. Whew. Torrance Marshall was a big boy. I think his pads also helped him out quite a bit back in that 2000 season. But any sort of comparisons to Torrance Marshall is a good comparison for the person who's being compared to him. But honestly, I, aside, uh, aside from just him looking giant, I don't really remember Ogboibu doing anything in that game. Yeah, I know. That's, uh, that's actually what my notes say is that physically, Ogboibu stood out. I mean, he was, I thought him and Benito were clearly the most physically imposing guys. Like, Ogboibu, Benito, and Perry and Winfrey are first off the bus guys. Those guys look, man, I, and, and of course, let me just, Nick Benito. I just I give you a standing ovation, round of applause. You, sir, are wearing your uniform perfectly. You look <laughs> great in your new setup. That new number. I didn't even know it was I actually had to look it up. I didn't know that he changed numbers. And I was like, who is that guy? Like he looks like an <laughs> It's like cause Winfrey, Benito, and Igwebu look like you know, look like big time mother effers on a top ten defense in the country. Like guys, like oh crap, we got to deal with those dudes. <laughs> and I, I, it's been a while. Like Kenneth Murray was really the only guy who looked like that last year on the defense. Um, and something like work was definitely put in because uh, Benito looks great. Um, and Benito was fine in terms of play. Like they were, he didn't really get an opportunity to rush the passer a lot because it was it was a ton of like two and three step drops and the ball was out for Missouri State. Um, 
David Igwebu is I, I I cannot believe that there is that they have someone who is more physically imposing than Kenneth Murray. Like, I cannot believe that that is possible. <laughs> All so, right, let's like, do the same thing. Igwebu looks like looks like an NFL defensive end playing middle linebacker. That's that's how crazy it is. Mm. So like I, you know. Mm. If he can, yeah, I, if he can look like that, and he can still run in the like, whoa, whoa. But I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that he's going to be able to run there. But we'll see. I don't know. That guy is like, if if that guy is being taken off of the field for Deshaun White, that needs to be very, very much. Uh, you know, they need to rethink that a lot. Um, as far as other linebacker positions go uh, Lincoln Riley mentioned he, he thought Reggie Grimes played well and we briefly touched on Reggie Grimes in our mega preseason pod uh, Grimes ended up with a sack I I didn't think he I mean I remember him like one play maybe it was a sack I'm thinking of but uh, I mean Lincoln Riley seemed to think that Grimes looked good so that's good to see a young player get an opportunity I mean it was later in the game uh, and also and I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that DTY looked really good coming up making tackles near the line of scrimmage, uh, showing a lot of quick decision-making. Uh, he looked like the DTY of old, and I, I guess I had forgotten. You know, we hadn't seen him since, what, the Big 12 title game? Did yep. he even play in the Big 12 title game? Yeah, he did. can't even remember. He did. He I know he didn't play his, against uh, LSU. So. Broke his collarbone in the practices leading up to LSU. Okay. So, yeah, good to see DTY back uh, coming up, making plays, and also making the, uh, the big defensive play, getting the turnover. So I thought he... He flashed as well, so I needed, it'd be a, a dumb podcast if I didn't bring him up. Yeah, I thought DTY was yeah. DTY was the most noticeable guy in the secondary, um, which is which is good to see because I, I he's 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 very very important for OU this season, especially in the box. Um, Grimes, yeah, you know I, I thought Grimes had kind of some inconsistencies, uh, but yeah, he he made some decent plays and physically looks the part and I, I, I know I keep banging that drum with these guys but I don't really know how else you know what else you can take from I'm this game a big physical guy but Reggie Grimes absolutely looks physically ready to play college football from day one and, and like I can't deny that even though I, I've definitely poo-pooed Reggie Grimes a little bit after watching high school but I, I, I if if he looks like that already physically then obviously I can I can envision a scenario where he, where he puts a lot together for sure. Let's do the same thing we did with the offense. Let's talk about who started and who was missing for Oklahoma's defense because that side of the ball, as far as starters go, they were in pretty good shape for the most part. You had Isaiah Thomas starting, which we expected that with Ronnie Perkins being out. And then you had LaRon Stokes at defensive tackle. And instead of having the nose guard, technically they started two defensive ends. And John Michael Terry technically got the start at defensive end, which is uh, interesting because of uh, you know, the lack of numbers. Then you had Nick Benito, Deshaun White. Uh, that's your front five. And then in the backfield or in the secondary, the backfield, uh, you had Buki, Jaden Davis, Trey Brown, DTY, and Pat Field. So for the most part, the starters were, were there minus Ronnie Perkins. Uh, well, I, I guess, and who else? Uh, who's the nose guard supposed to be starting there? Uh, well, Winfrey. Winfrey. Winfrey, but if you, if, like, if you saw, Winfrey was suspended for the first quarter or something because he didn't play in the first quarter at all. So, yeah, he, didn't, he wasn't out there to start the game, so I don't know why. 
But yeah, but Winfrey he obviously is, came into the game later, and he flat. He's he's Winfrey is 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 the clear starter at nose tackle. I, yeah. You can. He was he's he he exceeded my expectations of what he looked like. Um. So, and I don't I don't have a ton of thoughts on Perry and Winfrey other than what I already said about him being kind of like a first off the bus guy, but kind of reminded me and like this guy was just a top ten NFL draft pick. So do not do not freak out. Physically, he looked a lot like Derek Brown of Auburn. Um, nowhere near as impactful, nowhere near as good, but perhaps with the, the correct tutelage and hard work, maybe that's someone physically he could, you know, he, he could, uh, emulate is all. He looked a lot like Derek Brown. And not surprisingly, Alex Grinch said afterwards that he's a guy who's just scratching the surface of what he can be. He said he had some good moments, played well, exactly what you'd expect from somebody who, has some college experience, but junior college experience and is still transitioning into playing high-level Division One college football. But when you have the physical abilities that he has, you hope that he continues to grow and grow and grow. And with the lack of depth on the defensive line, his presence and his ability to play a lot better as the season goes on is paramount to this defense. And it's a good thing that he's available. Yeah, so, I, yeah really- I mean, all the starters – I say all, all the starters for the most part. Yeah, all the starters were available on defense, so that's at least a good sign. Yeah, the only ones missing were, I mean, yeah, Winfrey if you count the first quarter, and then you know Perkins is obviously a starter, and and I I do think Marcus Stripling is probably the starter, and and Perkins' spot, um, and then you know Corey Roberson and Jordan Kelly were both out at the nose, and I think we're going to see a lot of both of those guys this year probably as well. So, mm-hmm. the defensive front probably was the most impressive part they, they played really well I thought they were consistent they were getting in the backfield they were not being pushed around at all they held their ground very consistently I thought the defensive line was probably the most consistent and best group on the field for OU's defense um, on Saturday and I think that's really good knowing that you're likely to get Stripling Roberson and Kelly back for Kansas State you know with no COVID concerns uh, you know notwithstanding and that that's only going to help because those are those are three guys that I was pretty excited for, you know. You know, Stripling Flash last season, um, Corey Roberson is a guy that the coaches have talked very highly of, and uh, as a guy with a high ceiling. And then I, I think Jordan Kelly has pretty much been good every single time we've seen him in limited action. So, um, but yeah, I, I think really with the guys who are missing on defense, it's more of just disappointment. There were some young guys I wanted to see, and that's about it. Like mostly, I, I, I'm excited. I really wanted to see Shane Witter. Um, so I was disappointed that he wasn't out there. Um, and then linebacker, know, yeah, the linebacker, and then you know the defensive backs, Bryson Washington and DJ Graham and Kendall Dennis. I wanted to see what they had, you know, to show. The only the only freshman defensive back we really saw was Josh Eaton, and he didn't really stand out to me at all. Um, but you know, well, it's hard to they... stand out whenever the opposing offense isn't really going to give you any exactly. chances to stand out. It so. was it was tough for the for the secondary to stand out outside of in the box. Uh, because they're just, man, I, I'm sure if you went back and, and counted, I, I'm sure there could not have been more than five catchable passes thrown in that game by Missouri State. <laughs> and, like, I know that sounds mean, but I, I don't think I don't think there were. So, um, yeah, still, you know, obviously the, the, uh, the jury is still out on, on the secondary. And I think, you know, th- they'll get a bit of a test against Kansas State. Um, Kansas State, they're, I, I think they're going to be a disaster on the offensive line in all likelihood going into that game. Um, but Kansas State has, you know, has 
has an experienced quarterback who has won some big games as a college quarterback, and they do have better weapons, more dangerous weapons on the outside than they did last season. So I'm I'm curious to see how how you know how that test is going to go, but. Kansas State freaking lost to Arkansas State, and Arkansas State had like ten starters out with COVID. So, yeah, that's yeah. I'm 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 feeling much much more sanguine about the next two games than I was when the when the schedule was was released in the preseason. <laughs> Only other notable defensive player that uh, you left out there is Justin Broyles. He was not available as well. We know uh, we know all as, about Justin as depth. Broyles. Right? Yeah, he's 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 a depth guy back there at multiple positions. Other than that, yeah, I, I mean, if, it's if I Justin think, uh, Broyles rough, is your is like your third option at a position. You could do a lot worse. You could do a lot worse yeah, than that. Absolutely. So, I mean, combined between the offense, defense, and then oh, by the way, uh, Gabe Burkich and Reeves Munchau, the starting kicker and punter, also were missing. Oh, I didn't realize combined, that Munchau was out. That's how yeah, anonymous he wasn't he available is. either. He's the one guy in the team that I probably couldn't pick out. Or like the one prominent guy on the team I couldn't pick out from a lineup. That's a that's a good problem to have as a college football team when your punter is very rarely ever used. You don't know who it is. So during the game, uh, before mm-hmm. they even punted, I actually had the thought in my head of who's their punter? Like I had forgotten. Like I had actually <laughs> Oh my gosh. I was I, I was like uh, that's I was, funny. I even like I had a bunch of like kind of punters of old go through my head too. I was like, God, is it <laughs> is it Jed Barnett? Is it I don't, but no, it's it's Reeves Munchau. Sorry, Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about twenty guys on the depth chart that are like in the two or three deep that were unavailable due to COVID related issues on Saturday and after the game. Riley mentioned that yeah, the that game kind of hung in the balance a bit. So the numbers were not great, but then they played and everything was right in the world. Uh, any other comments, questions, concerns on the defense or specialists? I mean, I guess we got to give credit to the Oklahoma kicker, who now I'm blanking, Johnson. It was I like believe. Steven Johnson. Steven Johnson, yeah, good for him. He two for two on field goals. He had a 42 yarder. I mean, so like one of his field goals wasn't a cheapy, and uh, made all of his extra points. So, 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 so nice. Cal- when when did Callum Sutherland get kicked off the team? Wasn't he, wasn't uh, he the kicker few, to start last season? Oh, that's right. It was yes, like a was. few weeks yes. into the year last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a few weeks into the year. Yeah. Yeah, oh. Callum Sutherland, uh, boy, heck of a, heck of a career. Uh, won I the wonder, job, but then, then uh, got kicked off the team. I wonder how many uh, savvy OU fans will be able to pull that name out of their head in a decade. Hmm. Probably know. not a lot, I would guess. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's briefly ta- uh, touch on the whole suspension thing because obviously Ronnie Perkins, Trajan Bridges, and Ramon J. Stevenson still didn't play. So if you're keeping score at home, that's the second straight game. Those three players have not played, and we discussed it somewhat at length in our big mega pod, and you and I were under the impression, it's no inside source, it's just a theory of, hey, I mean, if they're suspended for six games and they have shortened the season by two games this year, doesn't it make logical sense to then shorten the suspension by two games? Therefore, those players should miss the first three games this season, and then they should be eligible for the Texas game. And that's just us. I mean, I, it's a very simple math problem in my head, 
and I think you kind of agreed with that a little bit. Uh, but I was listening to the Sooner Scoop podcast last week, and Kerry Murdoch mentioned that there's never been an appeal for this. And so I went back and kind of did some digging and looked at, because I could have swore Lincoln Riley had said the word appeal you know, months and months and months ago, and every time we ask him about it right now, he's very vague with it. He hasn't said the word appeal recently. But, I mean, Kerry's obviously very plugged in. Everyone here listens probably to the Sooner Scoop podcast. I know about Kerry's been covering OU for years. And so the whole idea is that, what, it's, it's a drug-related offense, right? That's why they're suspended. So, I mean, how do you appeal that? That's what they were talking about on their podcast. So I was looking back, and I, I think Lincoln was asked about an appeal at some point, and he keeps saying that it's an ongoing process. But I guess maybe he's never technically said the word appeal, and he's never confirmed that there was an appeal. So maybe there's some some – language weeds that he can kind of fall behind so if what Kerry said is true and they've never really appealed it and the suspension is still six games then I guess like my theory is dumb it's bad I will give credit to one of our listeners who commented on our SoundCloud page every once in a while we'll get comments on the SoundCloud page uh, and he brought up the fact that the the rule that they violated apparently allegedly, because it's never been confirmed by Lincoln Riley, is that the penalty is a 50%. Uh, I, I get You miss out on 50% of the season. So obviously, normally they play 12 games. That would be a six-game suspension. And so this user points out, and I say user because he doesn't have a, a username on SoundCloud, so I can't really give you a direct credit, but I'm trying to. He, obviously, the math is if the a season is now 10 games, 50% of 10 is now five. And so best case scenario, the suspension is reduced one game. And so best case scenario potentially is that those three players now miss the next three games and then come back after that, which would still mean that they probably miss Texas. I know that was a lot. Grant, you now can comment on any of that. Am I going wrong anywhere? Do you think I'm missing the point somewhere, or do you tend to think that that's where we are? I mean, that sounds about right. I have no, I have no reason to doubt that. You know, I about there not being an appeals process. I guess like I, I have no, I don't have any any, any counter factual to you know against Kerry there. So I'm gonna have to, I'll, I'll take his word for it. I don't think he would try to mislead us like that. Um, and I, I find either. it, I, I find I, it a little I, hard to believe yeah. that you can't appeal the length of a suspension. I, I mean can appeal anything um i thought like in him saying that ou hasn't even submitted anything like i don't know i guess now that i'm th- i find that really hard to believe man i find that really hard to, like why on earth if you're ou would you just hope that the ncaa is going to change their mind it's not on their radar they're not even going to think about it so yeah I, I i'm with you on that especially initially you know, let's say back in February, March, April, whenever a regular season of 12 games was expected. I can see them not appealing because let's say they were caught. I know all the reports are that it was a a drug related thing. And it's like how, you know, if they're positive, they're positive. You can't really do anything about that. Okay. But in mid August, when everything changes and they change the schedule and they reduce the season by two games from 12 to 10 at that point, because I'm sure Lincoln Riley and the program and compliance and everybody, they understand the NCAA rules about how 
whatever the penalty they got was, I'm sure they know that it's the 50% thing. So, of course, once the season's reduced, it would make sense to then appeal and say, hey, uh, shouldn't the suspension be reduced now because the season is uh, shorter? So now they their suspension or their penalty should be a lot – or not a lot, but should be you know less. If you're going to go by 50%, you should at least knock one game off here. So at least you know that's the hope. So I think, yeah, it would be v- very bizarre if up to this point – as we record this on September 16th, that Oklahoma has not had any contact or filed any formal appeal of some sort with the NCAA, especially considering the season has changed by two games. And I think that's kind of the point that you were bringing up a little bit. Yeah, I just like I don't it's hard for me to envision any scenario where the NCAA would just willy nilly be like, oh, yeah, hey, that suspension that we ruled on back in December of 2019 yeah, we're going to revisit that because we definitely do that. We have people in our office that go back and revisit <laughs> stuff. If there's no possible way they could hope for a reduction of a suspension unless there's some sort of communication with the NCAA. You know, I, I just, and, I guess, yeah, yeah I, I've talked myself into, into thinking, yeah, it's, it's likely they are in some sort of contact with the NCAA, but it's probably not like an official formal appeals process because... I mean, would it surprise you if the NCAA doesn't even have that? I mean, it's a clown show. I'm yeah. sure it's just yeah. a. I'm sure it's just a shoot an email to some general email address, and they get back to you in like three months. It's probably exactly what it is. Appeals at NCAA.org. <laughs> or yeah, hey, uh, like, would really love you to to re <laughs> rethink this penalty you brought down on these guys. Um, yeah, anyways, the, um, the yeah. scandal of the NCAA is not that they are is that they're not money-grabbing, evil exploitators of children. It's that they're absurdly incompetent. That's the scandal. That's it. <laughs> well, and how about this piece of news that you have been on, and you brought it up in our preseason megapod, that's something that I have not paid attention to much at all and don't know much about, but you do. On Tuesday, I can't remember who asked the question, so I apologize to the, the OUB writer who asked this but uh, Lincoln Riley was asked about Chris Murray I think it might have been Bob at Sooner Scoop I think Bob at Sooner Scoop asked it and Lincoln Riley said that Chris Murray uh, it's it's still an ongoing process and he added Lincoln did like a lot of things with the NCAA right now it's still an ongoing process hinting at obviously the suspension stuff so nothing has changed I mean, we're a game into the season now, and it would seem that nothing has changed. So there's your answer on Chris Murray, Grant, that uh, you were annoyed about. So I... And he's the... Uh, just a, go a quickly, if anyone's listening to this and they don't know about Chris Murray, quickly go over what's that all about. He's a, a transfer offensive lineman. He's a transfer offensive lineman for UCLA. He has basically been the starter for UCLA at center the last two seasons. He walked on campus and was a starter as a freshman right away at center for UCLA. The the talk out of inside the program is that he is an NFL guy and if he gets um, and if he gets approved, he is going to start on this offensive line, which means Tyrese Robinson in all likelihood would be a depth piece, which is absurd. Which is Ooh, absurd okay. to have a guy like that means you're talking again like when you had someone like Cody Ford as a depth piece. Like that's that's what you're ta- mm-hmm. like and that's a big deal. So I, I'm 
it's very, very frustrating to me. And this is, of course, I don't know the exact process of what Oklahoma has been doing ever since Chris Murray got on campus, but it's extremely frustrating to me that we are playing in a season where the NCAA has said eligibility is not a thing this year. It does not matter. You get a free season. They have already approved, like, uh, very quickly, immediate transfer waivers from guys from UCLA into the Big 12 to play already this year. There was a guy on Texas Tech who started and played who just like three weeks ago transferred from UCLA. OU has a guy who transferred from UCLA who's been on been here on campus, has been on the roster for six months. There is no logical explanation why he should why he should have to sit this season out. Zero. Not one. My first bit of like uh, the first thing that comes to my mind to, to which this is crazy do you know so when did he transfer in was it and you know because transfers usually come in what january i think he February? came in at the very end of the season so like in january or okay yeah so is it possible that since he he came in at that time and this is before anything to do with 2020 was ever here that well, this is just a standard transfer, and yep, you got to set out a year. Definitely, whereas that's definitely. Let's say, yeah, yes. I'm saying it's, that's which is, BS. Is crazy. Yeah, there I agree. Is, that's it's, BS. I. The thing that bugs me the most about the NCAA, and the thing that bugs me most about just kind of, I don't know, our current era and our current like moment in time, is that there is logic does not matter at all. People are, I guess, are just completely comfortable with very obvious conflicts in logic. And I just, you can't live life like that. It is confusing. It Mm -hmm. screws with people's brains. You have to stick with a formula of logic. Logic, it just does not make sense. It does not make sense. And I understand that's probably what the NCAA, if they deny a Chris Murray waiver or something like that, that's probably what they're going to say. I don't I, I just I don't see how you can say, "Oh, just because it's a different time, we're going to make an exception for this crazy thing. We're going to make an exception for everybody. We already gave a blanket eligibility waiver." Right. What now? What is the point of keeping of of someone having to sit out for a transfer now? Especially when especially when your process has no it has no criteria at all because right now it looks like if you're a quarterback from a power five team they're going to grant you a waiver right away and then if you're if, if, if you're a kid who desperately wants to go home and play so they can be next to their, like their dying grandpa who raised them as a child they're going to deny that waiver there's there's just there's no standard whatsoever and I'm going to keep hammering it over and over again the NCAA's incompetence gives the appearance of corruption. Well, That's I will say to, to transition into another subject, weirdly enough, and I just found this out recently because I did not know this on our last podcast, when it comes to a uniform standard, the NCAA actually does have one in terms of COVID-19 return to play guidelines. And if you listened to the podcast last week, we were talking about, uh, you know, is there going to be a standard? Is Oklahoma going to be a, a team that has a bunch of contact tracers and people with 
COVID, you know, because we, we still don't know publicly how many were contact tracers, how many had COVID, whatever that affected this last game. But the, the fear is that some teams will have different rules for contact tracing than other teams and other conferences. And then that could provide a competitive disadvantage if there's not uniform rules all across college football. Well, apparently there is. And I didn't know about this at the time, but I did some research and looked it up. And so the NCAA has released, and this came back out in the summer, across all of college football, they have the same exact contact trace and COVID-19 guidelines that Oklahoma is using. So it's supposed to be happening everywhere. And so, again, this kind of answers our question last week when we were, we were wondering, hey, is this, this, is this the same? And talking to Lincoln Riley on Tuesday, he was asked about a lot of this stuff, and he said, barring any unforeseen circumstances, that he doesn't see this rule changing. And so if you follow me on Twitter, at Lee Benson News 9, I put out a Twitter thread on Tuesday that I think highlights exactly why this is a potential problem in college football this year, the whole COVID-19 contact trace guidelines, specifically with the contact tracing. And I wanted to get into it a little bit here because I know that it's something that it's incredibly nuanced. And if you're not paying attention, it can just go right over your head. But I'm trying to think of like the big headline right now. And I suppose the big attention getter in this entire situation to me is that the current NCAA rules that everybody in the country are supposed to go by when it comes to contact tracing, the current rules look like they are incentivizing players to go out and get the coronavirus and then just be done with it. Why is that? Because there are situations where you can get knocked multiple times for being a contact tracer. And if you're knocked as a contact tracer, which means that you were, according to the CDC, and this is not the NCAA because they've adopted CDC guidelines, this is what these are some examples of being knocked as a contact tracer. Either you're within six feet of somebody that has COVID-19 for at least 15 minutes. You had direct physical contact with somebody who has COVID-19. You shared eating or drinking utensils with somebody that has COVID-19. Or simply, you know, you got sneezed on or you got coughed on by somebody that has COVID-19. If any of those things happen to you and they find out about it, you are knocked as a contact tracer, which means mandatory 14 days quarantine. 14 days quarantine. And that, that even does come with, even if you're feeling fine, you're asymptomatic, and you've already tested negative for COVID-19, you still have to do a 14-day quarantine. That is CDC guidelines currently and also NCAA guidelines. And Lincoln Riley talked, to us, talked about this on Tuesday, that if players can get knocked multiple times, boom, 14 days, and then you get knocked again, just like that, you're 28 days of missing whatever. And you still haven't gotten the virus. You haven't built up any immunity to it. So that means in the future, you could still get knocked as a, as a contact tracer. And so can you imagine, and this is, this is the big thing too, can you imagine being a player, and I'm sure this happened to a significant amount of players on Saturday, that they don't have COVID-19, but they're a contact tracer, and they tested, probably negative for the coronavirus, but they were told that they could not play in the game because of contact tracing guidelines. And they have no guarantee moving forward that they won't get knocked again. 
as a contact tracer. That is a potential headache and massive problem in college football. And essentially, if you test negative for the coronavirus, especially on a Friday leading into a Saturday game, you should be able to play in that game. Full stop. But according to the NCAA rules and CDC guidelines, that isn't necessarily the case. This, again, can be a potential problem. And Oklahoma could, uh, they could get through it against a Missouri State team where missing a lot of guys was not going to be a big problem. But if something like this happens again, and we get to Kansas State, or we get to Iowa State, or we get to Texas, and we find out that the game, like Lincoln Riley said, is hanging in the balance because of all these rules, that is going to make a lot of people very, very mad, including yours truly, and I know you on the microphone over there as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be happy with it. Um, I just, I don't think it's good policy. It's not thoughtful. Um, it's based on, it's based on the exact same guidelines the CDC had in March when we didn't know anything about the virus and when, and when widely available testing was not available. Um, I'd like to know if, if, uh, if daily testing, if that's something that could, that could get rid of this rule, uh, because I, and any listeners who, who have expertise in this can correct me if I'm wrong. I always thought the, the quarantine rules were in place in the absence of, of wide available testing. And that is not an issue at the University of Oklahoma. So I, I just, I, I think it is overkill. This is overkill. Um, but also, I mean, you could say there are going to be, there are going to be different programs and schools that probably can't afford daily rapid testing. I know OU can afford it. They need to pay for it. Um, I, I just, well, in the big 12, they're already testing three times per week. I mean, that's a lot of testing. That's obviously a lot more testing than you and I are doing and everybody else in the public right now is doing. Can you imagine if you got tested three times per week for the coronavirus? How confident would you be that? Yeah. Like, I mean, that, you either you know you have it or you don't have it basically every single day for the most part. So I, I, the fact that they're testing so much, that, that should do it, in my opinion. I, I think... I agree. In, in other... You know, I, I, in, yeah. But also, I, I'm not an expert. I don't know. I, one, of, one of the reasons why, you know, one of the reasons why, one of the, the very many reasons why, you know, we, we were maybe hesitant to have a podcast is we didn't want to come on here and play COVID doctor. We don't know. I, I'm not... I don't know, man. I, I'm. I think if we have wide available testing, which I know has just been, has been a political football and whatnot, so it's very difficult to get any sort of like accurate read on the situation at all. But to me, this feels like overkill. And you're right that it absolutely incentivizes just having your entire team get COVID. It does, and you've already saw it. Ed Orgeron already came out and said our our team already had it. Our entire team already had it, and. <laughs> You're yeah, freaking he didn't kidding say the yourselves. entire team, but he said most of the team. You are yeah. freaking kidding yourselves if you think that there aren't head coaches in the SEC who brought their guys back with that exact frame of mind. And Because in the what, SEC, and maybe you can correct me on this, because if, if other conferences have it, but I haven't been able to locate other conferences' standards, but in the SEC, if you already test positive for the coronavirus – you have a 90-day window where you don't have to be tested anymore. That's in the SEC. So whenever you test positive and then you recover and you're good, 
for 90 days, you don't have to get tested and you don't, and, and you're not going to ever get knocked as a contact tracer. Boom. I mean, that's like a full season. I guess. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the same rule in the big 12 yeah. and in the, the ACC and the, in the big 10, if it, you know, it's, it's coming back. I'm not sure if that's a, cause I was trying to find that in the NCAA guideline or return to play guideline. I couldn't find it. I think that's it. As of now, from whatever, ever, whatever I've been able to find, that's only an SEC rule, at least publicly. Man, I'm starting to think, I'm starting to think the Big 12, the NCAA can't step in. They're incompetent. They can't do anything. Um, man, there need there needs to be an injury report for this season. There needs there needs to be a public COVID report. There does. I, I'm I'm starting to think that now because it's it's way too easy uh, to. It, it's it's a competitive advantage in the in the opposite direction. Uh, like I'm, you can you you can hide like there. OU missed twenty plus guys for COVID related reasons, and I, I like I'm not breaking any news here. Pretty much no one on the team tested positive for coronavirus. These were all contact tracers. There was like one guy who tested you, positive, uh, and everyone else is a contact trace. So. Like, I think I, that's a it's, rumor. It's a rumor, but you're a journalist. I'm not. It's a rumor. The rumor has has legs. Um, geez, man. I, OU had 20-plus guys. Texas did not have a single guy out for COVID-related reasons. Texas is the only team I've heard of that has not had a single guy out for COVID-related reasons. That's freaking suspicious. I think Texas in June or July or whenever, I guess, maybe I think they've had a couple – pauses and stuff kind of in the preseason early and there's early been rumors preseason. that there's been rumors their team has been decimated by covid so maybe maybe they're one of the teams that just had it and they're they're done with it but it's possible that and the rules may have incentivized that exactly and that's the perfect example of unintended consequences for certain rules how do you enforce these contact trace rules it's essentially all based on the honor system, which I think is why you're saying that a public COVID announcement or report thing would make it more difficult to, I mean, you, you hate to infer that certain programs wouldn't take it as seriously as others, but we're all humans here. Uh, it's possible. And I think it's, it's probably happening. It's probable. It is probable that head coaches in the country have had people back and they have hoped that their team got covid and it ran through them. That is a that's it that it's very probable. Because there's and a lot of honestly, head football I coaches don't... who are who are paid lots of money to win football games. Mhm. And And I wouldn't honestly I wouldn't blame them because then you're not going to be knocked for contact tracing stuff if you have a lot of players who have already gotten the virus, were asymptomatic. I I believe we've seen plenty of reports now that, that none of these college kids there hasn't been any hospitalizations as far as I've, I've heard. Maybe that's changed since I did this podcast. So it would seem that a lot of the, the issues with it have been mild, if any. And then they're at a spot where they don't need to be tested anymore. And then there won't be as high of a chance of people getting knocked as contact tracers. And you know, maybe that, again, maybe that's happened at Texas. And you know, who knows? You can't ever, you'll never know if anybody, I don't think anybody's going to do this on purpose. I think that's, that's not fair to say because that's kind of okay. Like you see, like the, the stuff about like, COVID parties. Like I, I'm not going to accuse anybody of that because that is some conspiracy theory stuff that I will not subscribe to. But it's certainly possible and probable, like that 
well, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's reality. A lot, some teams, not, I was going to say a lot, some teams we already know of probably have had COVID go through them and others have not. Like LSU, Ed Orgeron said, I know Clemson had a, had a bunch of COVID cases in the summer. So who knows, Clemson might be through it. So it's, we definitely know of some schools that have had COVID a lot more than other schools. I mean, would it and surprise anybody? In theory, yeah. It would it surprise anybody if the schools that that just kind of made that bargain and lived with it, would it surprise anyone if those schools are Clemson, Alabama, and LSU? It wouldn't surprise anybody. In fact, I think it's almost no, likely. Probably not. It's likely. I, I don't know. So. Yeah, and th- that's the thing. Like, I I think that's, that's um, let's just try to be as apolitical as possible, but that's one of the reasons why it's so sad that this has been politicized so much because there are lots of us who love college football across many different spectrums of the political spectrum, who love football, want to play, but a lot of us are just not on the same page at all about any of this stuff. Um, and uh, it's, that, it's too tough, and that is because everything's been politicized. Um, and I, I just, mm-hmm. it is a good thing if an 18 to 22-year-old healthy person gets this thing and is asymptomatic. That is good news. It's what we should strive for. That's what everyone was saying in the early spring. And I, I just, cases should not instantly be met with derision. If they are cases that are asymptomatic and not in danger to the person, it is a good thing. That means that is one less person who can carry the virus and give it to someone else. It's very, very good to have asymptomatic cases. And that's all I'll say. And for those who might hear that and think, what do you mean? Well, what do you think vaccines do? You get a vaccine because you get a little bit of the disease, whatever it is, the I virus. I don't know anything about that stuff. And you build up an immunity to it. That's the whole point of a vaccine. You get a little bit of the flu shot. You get a little bit of the flu, whatever they think the strain is going to be that year. And in theory, you build up immunity to it. Yeah, and that's why they're trying to figure out the COVID vaccine. So, but the point is, though, if you already get coronavirus and you're asymptomatic, like you said, and it goes out of your system and, and you're fine and you're not able to carry it anymore, that's a good thing. That's the whole idea of getting a vaccine for something is that you get it and then you can't get it again. Now, I know that we don't know how long you have immunity to it yet. That's still in question. And that's a fair, fair question. We don't know that yet. It's still a novel virus. And we don't know yeah. if it's possible to get it again or not. And this isn't... I think there's... Yeah. Yeah. This, this isn't... This is not COVID truther podcast at all. Wear a mask. Wear a freaking mask. The viral load, which a mask does help uh, uh, lessen the viral load. Vi- like, if you get a bigger viral load, you have a higher chance of the case not being asymptomatic. You have a higher chance of the case being severe if you get a huge viral load of the virus. That's why masks are important. They will, masks will create more asymptomatic cases. So like it's just wear a mask, but asymptomatic cases are good. That's it. Well, all the OU people, all the people in the Oklahoma football program, they, they are wearing masks everywhere. They are going above and beyond. And for what it's worth, I will say on Tuesday, talking to Lincoln Riley, it was the most upbeat he's been I think, in, in a while, and a lot of the questions were around the COVID stuff, not surprisingly, because so many players missed the game, and we were trying to just kind of get an idea of what's going on, learning about the contact tracing stuff, and, and for, for, again, for what it's worth, 
Lincoln Riley seemed to be in a pretty good mood on Tuesday. That could be totally unrelated to anything else. Maybe he was just in a good mood. But uh, I think that's a good way to go out on this subject and to transition somewhere else that for whatever, you know, whatever it's worth, Lincoln Riley seemed like he was feeling pretty good on Tuesday. All right. Anything else Oklahoma related? I think we've covered it all. I don't know. I'm terrified of that COVID segment we just did. I didn't want to talk about that crap at all, but kind of feels like you, you have to these days, I guess. Well, I think all the stuff with the contact tracing is incredibly important because yeah, that can just, factor into. I've always wanted to avoid stuff kind of like this because whether or not it's, it's right or whether or not we feel good about it, this whole thing is politicized and politics by nature are divisive. And I just desperately want to stay away from divisiveness like that unless it's divisiveness purely on the college football field because that's, that's right. healthy, good divisiveness. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah, just, we, yeah, we don't want to alienate anybody that listens to the West of Everest podcast because of politics because that's stupid. We're keeping that out of sports. It's absurdly and, stupid. Keeping that out of West of Everest, I guess, is more precisely because – you and I are of the mind that we like sports because we like that it's, it's separate from certain things. And people enjoy watching football because it's, it's, it's not politics, you know. And so we certainly do not want to alienate anybody because of any sort of potential political stance we have. And I think that's what you're trying to get at a little bit. And that's why you're a bit hesitant to go into those, I, those um, I'm trying COVID to be, discussions. I, I would like to be polite to people who maybe think differently than others. And I think that's just something that everybody should be, should be doing in their day-to-day life. And Yeah, same here. That's, a, this is, that's and, a good standard to have. And I do that in hopes that me doing that uh, will, will, it will, you know, will inspire other people in turn to treat me in the same way. Um, I know, very, very, uh, very intense, uh, deep uh, you know, philosophy we're talking about here, but... Um, can we talk about the Big Ten uh, instead please I was going to say so talk about politics your standard your standard of treating people with respect and being nice and hoping that you get it back from them when you're talking about highly politicized potentially politicized uh, topics let's just throw it out throw it out the window as we go down to the Big Ten yeah (laughs) (laughs) let's just uh, yeah Uh, I mean so the Big Ten's coming back we're recording this on Wednesday, which the announcement came down today. And, I mean, the biggest news of it all, right, is the dates they're coming back, Grant. Would you agree with that? Because, I mean, it's been kind of rumored for the last I, I, maybe week that it's probably likely they're going to come back this fall. But I did not anticipate them coming back the weekend of October 23rd and 24th. I thought for sure if they're trying to get into the college football playoff, it would have to be definitely at the very latest. I know that the 17th was a very popular date the last few days. I kind of thought that was on the late end. Like at the very latest, you got to come back by the 17th, but they should be back by the beginning of October, maybe a week later, but instead, no, they're coming back at the end of October and the schedule is setting up to where they have nine potential weeks to play games before the final college football playoff rankings, and that includes a Big Ten title game. So the Big Ten, I guess, and I think this is official, they're going to play eight conference games and then a Big Ten title game. Is that what you've read? Yeah, and then uh, 
what they're doing for the the conference championship week is actually super interesting. Everybody in the conference is playing a plus one. They're just doing it. Um, they are still doing divisions and just yeah, the the winners of the division will play in the Big Ten championship game, and then the number two team and the number two team will play, and then so on and so on. So everyone gets nine games. Um, I think that's, oh, I hadn't read that yet. That's I think that's cool. a really interesting. Uh, I, I think that's a smart thing that they're doing there to get to everyone get that extra game, and of course they're doing that for you know for bowl eligibility and stuff like that. Even though I don't even know if, if the concept of bowl eligibility is a thing this year, but um, I don't either. So yeah, and, and and I'm sure there's there's monetary things in there. So you know I'm sure that's that's one extra maybe home game for people. It's an extra TV game as well. Um, I, I just I, I think that's smart. That that's that's a really cool thing they're doing. Um, Honestly, I think the other conferences should maybe add that onto theirs too. Because why not? Who cares? You can you can change a schedule whenever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in twenty twenty. Yeah, especially I mean, now. There's... Yeah. So you know, I'll, I'll give them credit for that. Um, you know, I, I don't. I have a ton of thoughts on the Big Ten. This has by far been the story that I have been most plugged into uh, since the middle of August. I, I think this is. Um, if it wasn't for, you know the kind of the sad uh, nature of everything with them postponing the season and, and how many people that affected. Um, if it wasn't for that, I'd, I'd feel a lot more comfortable telling you that I thought this was maybe the most entertaining college football story uh, that we've had at least since realignment. Um, and it's, I know a lot of people feel the same way. It's very nice for the big 12, not to be the most dysfunctional conference for a change. And um <laughs> I don't want to get, I don't want to get super into it. I have a lot of thoughts on it. Maybe like we'll have a podcast where we just do a deep dive into this. I'd much rather wait until there's more solid reporting on everything. But let me just say that everything that has gone down with the Big Ten since the middle of August, since or since the beginning of August when they released that schedule and then postponed the season six days later, there is a lot of extremely suspicious things that have happened since then. Um, lots of smoke that there's quite a bit of chicanery going on. Um, like I said, I want to wait until there is more solid reporting, but I think reading between the lines, it's pretty clear that what the Big Ten was telling everybody compared to their actions just did not line up at all. Um, the communication has been bad. That kind of tells you that there was not really that this came about probably pretty quickly and there was not a lot of, of unity about the decision. I, I just, so there's, there's some chicanery going on and I, I, I would wait. I would like to wait until there's more, more solid yeah, reporting yeah. to confirm this. But if yeah, anybody so knows I. how, if anyone knows how the media works and how sources work and how it's, there's some weird stuff going on here. Is all I'm going to say. I am happy for all of the Big Ten football players who will now get a chance to play at some point this fall. We now know that it's the end of October. This is better than nothing. The way that we got here still does not absolve the Big Ten of being a complete clown show, in my opinion, based on what I know right now throughout this entire process. Uh, Good for the student athletes that they will get to play. But still, like I said in the last podcast, Shame on all of the adults whose decisions got us to this point to where now it's an even shorter season for the Big Ten and 
there's really no built-in bye weeks. So who knows how that's going to affect things if COVID and contact tracing hit certain Big Ten schools. It's a very tough needle to thread now for this conference. But again, I'm happy for all the players who now who will now get to play. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I agree. I, I'm happy, you know, I, I'm i an alumnus of a Big Ten school. You know, I I went to the University of Minnesota. I'm happy they're going to have a season. Um, so I, I, I did have skin in the game in this as well. I was I was upset at my graduating institution about what they were saying about everything. It, it, it made me upset. So I, I'm glad that this has been corrected and they're going to play because it is the right thing to do. As leaders, if, if there is a path available and there was a path available in the middle of August, it is your responsibility as leaders of these young men and these people to give them that opportunity if there is a path available and a path was available. So that's, uh, it's, and I guess you want to wait for more reporting, but the Big Ten absolutely was putting pressure on the rest of college football to cancel this season. Well, and, yeah, all the, all the, I mean, some respected reporters were essentially reporting that, I think, at the time. That they kind of figured that, and, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, at some point you get so much information that, that comes in and you try to parse out. It's overload. That's the, yeah. that's, that's the, that's the era we live in. That's one of the reasons I guess why reading this the era tea, is so tough. That's why we mm-hmm. can't get on the same page. Because you can go on your phone and you have a news feed that's curated exactly to your feelings. And I'm guilty of this. You're guilty of this. Everyone is guilty of this. And what it's going to do is that phone, that news feed is going to confirm your worldview 100% of the time. And it's, I know a lot of people don't, like, don't want to stare this reality in the face. But the truth is, social media and screens have become such, an, uh, such a large part of our lives that people are starting to make decisions because of that. And I and I'm I'm well, speaking of personal I'm speaking with personal you know experience. I spend way too much time on that stuff, and I and 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 I I struggle a lot with stuff like that. And so it's mm-hmm. if I'm struggling with it, that means everybody who is spending a lot of time on there is struggling with it. And well, I, certainly I just some people can handle it in different ways than others. True. I mean, yeah. I, I spend way I spend way too much time on it as well. I, Fortunately for me, I'm kind of in the business. I know you're not, so it, it definitely probably affects you a different way. I kind of feel like I have to be on it for work. But I have learned that even if I didn't work in media, I probably still would be on Twitter a lot just for the information. But I love, uh, you know, but so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an information junkie. I love being plugged in. I like knowing right. exactly when everything happens in the college football world. I do follow current events. I don't, I don't talk about them on here, but it is a hobby of mine. I like it. I'm the type of person who needs to know what's going on at all times. I'm on Twitter a lot because Twitter is now the world's number one news source. That is how you break news. And, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of populations that are overrepresented on Twitter, on Twitter. And it gives a lot of people the idea that the virtual world that they see on Twitter is the real world. And it's getting to the point where that is true. It is bleeding over. And it's not just Twitter. It's Facebook. It's all that stuff. It's everything. And so I think that is a large part 
of this Big Ten story. Um, but like I said, I want to wait until there's more solid reporting, and there will be. There will be good reporting. You know there are people in the Big Ten offices who are very upset that football was not going to be played and are just waiting to talk to somebody. So we, we will Hopefully. find out about this, about what happened. Um, and, I, you know, I school presidents and chancellors are political individuals. They are political appointees. Do not be shocked if a lot of politics are in play here. I'm not talking about White House politics, just politics in general. That's it. In, term, in, in terms of the Big Ten trying to get everybody else to go along with their decision back in early to mid-August, I do think a good piece of evidence that that is probably the case is the fact that once the Big Ten did end it, the Pac-12 followed suit. They're like, yep, all right, cool. We're, we're in too. Like they're just waiting for somebody else to go. And I've listened to – I really uh, respect Petros Papadakis, who calls college football games on Fox – Fox Sports 1, and he's out in L.A., and he went to USC, and, he, and he's really plugged in in the Pac-12. And he, he essentially, you know, he said you know, the, the leadership in the Pac-12 is a joke, and, and he's not surprised that they just wanted to follow along with, you know, whatever the Big Ten would wanted to do. And so whenever other conferences did not follow suit, I'm sure there were some people in the Big Ten who probably were surprised that they did not follow suit. So again, I, I should be more precise. I'm not sure if that was reported by respected people. Maybe it was just me reading the tea leaves and that's my own opinion. And I think you're being very responsible, wanting more and more reporting. And also for us, if we're going to do a podcast on this, I didn't particularly prepare for this to get all the information that uh, I want to get out there. So it's fair for all sides, because I know that it's not fair to just throw stuff up against the wall. I mean, everyone has their opinions on things, but we take pride, you and I, and backing up our opinions with facts and, and things that we know to be true. And if we know something is not true, we don't want to have an opinion that's based off of something that is totally false. So anyways, uh, the, it's a good thing the Big Ten's playing. Do they deserve, though, at the start date, do they deserve to be a, you know, a, a conference that should be included in the college football playoff discussion? I don't think there should be any concessions made for the Big Ten. If they can pull it off, and if they can have, if they can get, a, if they can, if they can produce a conference champion at the same time as everyone else does, that has looked impressive. If not, if if Ohio State is nine and zero and wins the Big Ten championship, goes through their schedule, I have no problem with them being in the college football playoff. Um, I don't think On there should day, be any concessions I, yeah. made to the Big Ten. I think they should have to earn it just like everyone else. Interesting you putting it that way because I don't know if you heard, I heard Joel Klatt on Clay Travis's show last week talking about that. And this is obviously before the Big Ten officially was coming back. And Klatt made a really interesting point. And maybe this was Monday. I can't remember. Uh, he made a really interesting point about how the other conferences, the Big 12, the ACC, and the SEC, they're not very happy right now with the Big Ten. So what incentives do they have in actually working with the Big Ten and allowing them to, to join the table? Because they were the ones, and this is Clat talk, and that, like, they were trying to go a different direction. And you know, they didn't want to play. Sure. You know what? I, here's how I would counter with that. Is uh, to the ACC, the Big 12, and the SEC. Um, 
their feelings regarding the big, you know, the Big Ten, um, and, and of course, there's lots of people in those conferences, and so it's 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 not fair to put a blanket, you know, uh, you know, blanket everybody with the same opinion. But if that is how they feel about the Big Ten, I would I would suggest do not go down into the mud. Do the right thing. Do the thing that they that the Big Ten would not do. You know, I I I, I which think is, if you if you which, what's the right thing? Say all right, you grace, can play. Show grace. Say hey, hmm. you made a mistake. We're get, like that's fine. Come on in and play football. That's okay. I just like I, I would. I'd really appreciate the Big Ten admitting they made a mistake instead of coming out and just and trying to spin it to their advantage. I mean, how stupid do you think we are? Right. Come right. on. And you know what? That's that's actually a really good point you just made, Grant. And I do think there needs to be a little bit more grace. And why why is what you just put out there the right the quote unquote right call? And I I think you are correct. Now that I'm thinking about it. It's the right call because who really matters in this whole situation? The players and the coaches. Do not penalize those kids, those student athletes and coaches who, for the most part, the vast majority of them all wanted to play. They all wanted to play. Do not punish them because some adults made it difficult on them this year. I think you're right. I think there should be some grace shown, and I think there should be definitely a pathway for a Big Ten team to get into the college football playoff. Because of that, I mean that's that's why they're coming back in the fall. I would, I would assume. I just, I, mean, I, I don't think. Yeah. And you know what? Like this is college football. One of the reasons why is why it is entertaining is because it is divisive and because it is funky, and because lots of weird stuff happens. Like I, I think I think part of what makes college football great is the fact that not that not everybody is together and that there is no unity. That makes college football entertaining. Um. In this situation, though, because everything is so politicized, I feel like if you start kind of like waging a war against the Big Ten, then it's just going to be tossed into to everything else that's divisive. Because then you're talking about because also one of the re- one of the reasons why college football is great is because there are regional differences. And when you're talking about regional differences now, you're talking about political differences. I desperately do not want college football to be down into the mud with that crap. It's bad for our country. It's bad for everybody. It's bad for the players. It's bad for everyone who wants to tune in and just watch college football. That's exactly what would happen if the three conferences playing right now waged war on the Big Ten. They should gracefully accept them back, in, back into the fold, and everyone should just play football. At the same time, there's a lot of people who would really appreciate if the Big Ten just came out and said they made a mistake and that they're doing this for the players. But I, I yeah. think the lack of communication, the strategic leaking, the strategic story placement, they're giving off the impression that they're desperately trying to massage this thing. And like I And you read the statement by the Big Ten coming out on Wednesday that they're coming back to play. They're they're going really they're really going really deep into the, the health stuff and, and the myocarditis and the heart and it's just yeah. And they're really going to try to hide behind the health. And, and I'm sorry. Like, and here's I, I, I got to step in here. And because this is what bugs me. Um, this this is why I get upset. Why I feel like, you know, why I feel like the Big Ten is kind of peeing on my face and telling me that it's raining is because when they come out with the health stuff and they say, this is the reason why we postponed. And now this is the reason why we can play again. 
all they're doing is just covering their ass. That's all they're doing. Because their actions and what they did after the postponement completely upends any health argument that they made. Because you guys know what they did. All they did was cancel the games. All the other programs, they were still practicing every day. They were still working out. They were still expected to be within the structure of the football program. They were still being tested three days a week. The only thing they canceled was the games. And there are a lot of very incurious journalists not asking why that's the case. Because the answer is obvious. Yeah, the NCAA let the, the football teams in the Big Ten practice for up to 12 hours per week after, after they had canceled the season. So and also they're they're, they, they had no problem welcoming them, welcoming them back, you know, tens of thousands of regular students on campus, you know, who, aren't, who don't have full ride scholarships, who a lot of them are paying 40 grand a year to be there. Mm-hmm. To pay for an education that's looking... not going to get them anywhere in life. And they don't know that. <laughs> I'll just Who's being exploited? The, huh? Who's being exploited in this situation? It's garbage. And so the, I was just curious on how many Big Ten schools, if all of them have had kids on campus, because that, that's a big part of the whole health thing that, that didn't seem right to me, is, wait a second, can't, they, can't these student-athletes get the coronavirus on campus with all these other kids the same because they can get them at practice or whatever and like what's the difference here and Purdue had kids on camp has kids on campus Ohio State Michigan Wisconsin although Wisconsin has I guess paused in-person classes for two weeks Illinois uh, Rutgers limited limited on campus uh, Michigan State on campus and I ran out of time when I was doing research so there, there's probably more so it's not like the entire Big Ten was all virtual no, they, they were having kids on campus, and they were having the, the, the football teams practice still, like you said. So uh, um, unless you could prove that playing games is going to spread the virus more than anything else, which it's impossible to prove, and I don't know how that would be the case considering they test a lot and the chances of players playing in games that actually have the virus – are incredibly low because they're not letting anybody play in games that have tested positive. It just, it, yeah, it smells very fishy to me. And it's like, and not, not to mention whenever other conferences, especially conferences outside the power five, like the Sun Belt, we all know about now who had a great weekend. They were playing, they were planning on playing. They're fine. They're doing, they're doing all right. Um, what other kind con- the, the American conference they're playing. I mean, I think it's six conferences right now that are playing. What's, I can't remember the, the sixth is, but uh, yeah. It, it, and so it, to make it even more kind of confusing and annoying about the Big Ten really, really going hard to the hole on the health stuff, in their guidelines, and I'm not sure how much you read this, Grant, but in their guidelines, it says that if someone tests positive for COVID-19, the earliest a student-athlete can return to game competition is 21 days following a positive diagnosis. Wait, that's the Big Ten? The Big Ten in their release on Wednesday. So if in the season or starting right now, whenever they come back or they start going, if you get the virus, <laughs> you're going to miss three weeks minimum according to their, their new rules. And I, you know what? I, I bet right now, though, I bet, I bet the Big Ten teams are in the exact same boat as all the, all the teams playing right now. 
because if I if if from what I understand, a majority of the Big Ten teams have stayed on campus, have continued to start practicing, because that's like that's mm-hmm. that a lot of that is what started the coaches starting to talk about like, dude, like we're practicing every single day. Why can't we play when everyone else is? Like, it's the whole thing is silly. It's all silly, you know. I. I'm very, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, you know, to there being better reporting, uh, just so we can we can definitively say this stuff. Um, there's, there's, I, I'm, I'm fairly sure that there is there is chicanery going on behind the scenes. What is it? I don't know. I don't know. Why did the big Why did the big uh, the Big Ten initially decide to postpone? I have some theories. I don't have anything in stone for sure but i know based off of anecdote or not anecdotal evidence but based off of everything that we've seen what the big 10 has said and then their actions i know they didn't make the decision based off of the health and safety of the players i know they didn't no no or at least that um, was not the final that that was that was not the final reasoning because i'm sorry you can't you can't cancel the season and say it's the health and safety and then welcome back 40,000 students to campus. Liability concerns are exactly the same. You think if a you think if a regular student gets covid on your campus and dies, you're not going to have a lot of problem with that too. Come on. Come on guys. Just ask yourself this. Ask yourself this and this is going to be kind of maybe what we go out on. They cancel it in mid to, to early to mid August and the, the thought was they're looking towards the spring and we weren't podcasting then. So we aren't on the record, but that was always absurd. I mean, you're not going to play in the spring. It doesn't make any sense as far as all the best players are going to opt out because they're going to get ready for the combine in the NFL draft. And then you're going to ask these players to play a spring season and then turn around a few months later and then play in the fall again. How is that not, not a problem for player safety? And so the thought is, I remember asking this question again, and to be fair, we don't have this publicly because we weren't podcasting, but my thought is, okay, you're canceling in August. What is going to be different surrounding the coronavirus in February or March? What will have changed aside from a dust ex machina miracle vaccine that apparently is 100% uh, successful and everybody can get? which the likelihood of that happening is even to this day now, a month later, incredibly unlikely. What is going to change? And the answer to that, you can't, nothing. In my, my opinion, nothing will have changed. We'll just kick the can down the road. Not to mention you will be playing at the height of flu season in April, January, February, March, or whatever it was going to be, in the Big Ten, outside when it's colder than everywhere else. It didn't make any sense. And so now, health-wise, they decide a month-ish later, okay, we're going to play at the end of October. I asked the Big Ten yet again, what has changed? Nothing has changed, except they got a heck of a lot of pushback because they know they made a rash, dumb decision that affected a lot of people negatively, and now they're trying, this is, me, this is my opinion, and now they're obviously trying to save face And at least, again, to go back to what I said towards the very beginning of this, at least for the player's benefit, they will get to play at some point this fall. So it was a weird route to get here. 
but I am at least happy that the Big Ten is going to swallow their pride at least a little bit, never going to probably admit to it, but at least it's going to let these kids play. And let's just take the good from it. I'm extremely happy that the players who thought that they were going to have their season taken away get to play now. I'm really, really happy about that. Um, and I, I, I really hope the Big Ten leadership does not get away with this. Same. Because I, I just, Same. it's, they need to take their licks. It's okay to make mistakes. There needs to be more grace in this society. And I feel like, you know, I feel like if there was more grace in society, maybe the, maybe the Big Ten would have never decided to postpone. Um, yeah, maybe. And, um, yeah, let's, let's take the good from it. We're very happy that those kids and those families and maybe those people who maybe would have been without a job, that's now been delayed. And now they're, they're, they're able to play at least. Um, but I really hope not we have some answers. Not to mention the millions... Yeah. Not to mention the millions of Big Ten football fans out there. Yes. Fans are important. They mean a lot. I can't imagine not having Oklahoma football this season because of some arbitrary decision by the Big 12. I can't imagine not having the NFL this season. I'm really glad you bring that up because... um, as as we as as this moment continues, as this era continues, and we get closer and closer to, um, like uh, you know, uh, I, I for lack of a better term, athletes' rights, their um, them being able to make money off of their own likeness, the potential of athletes organizing or creating some sort of union. Um, I think it's super super important to highlight the differences between amateur and professional sports. And why, like, I, and, I, and I know I've talked about this before. I've talked emotionally about this, why we love college football. And I just want to say, the moment that it is no, that the moment that it turns into a professional league, it's no longer college football. One of the reasons why we have a connection to college football and we love it is because when we go to those schools, they mean something to us. They mean something to everybody personally. And when especially a recruit, when they decide to go to the University of Oklahoma as a fan, as someone, as someone you know, who, who internalizes that and thinks that it means a ton to me, that, that's a big deal because that tells me that that person saw a lot of the same stuff that I did in that school and that they were emotionally drawn to it as well. That's why I love watching those guys play because that's what we have in common. And as soon as you take that away, as soon as you make it about a check, I just want people to think about what that means for the institution and what that means emotionally for other people and not, not just the fans, but the players as well. For, and maybe for players who in, in, the, in the future maybe wouldn't even be able to experience that because it's taken away. I'm going to take every opportunity I can on this podcast to highlight that and emotionally plead for it. That's all I have to say. All right. I think that'll do it for today. It's a great way to end this podcast on a, a super, super emotional plea. Keep amateurism alive. Grant, you're kidding yourself if you don't know it's already about a check for some places. Especially in college basketball, which we already know that 
There's plenty of checks going out there. Uh, that the FBI certainly has interest in, apparently. Um, I'm just saying it's... But otherwise... It's, it's extremely easy very to tear point. down institutions. It's really hard to build them up. I agree with that. And I also think that the most important thing you said there, in my, in my opinion, is the commonality between these players and the fans. Whether or not you went to Oklahoma or you just grew up as a fan of that team... That's a good point because that is, it's so important to find those, 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 those differences, not differences, the exact opposite, those commonalities between us you know, who are outside the program and inside the program because if we are different in so many different ways, at least we have this one thing in common that we hold dear to ourselves, and that's important. That's important in humanity because that's how people get along. That's how people can see the humanity in other people, whether or not they agree or disagree on other subjects and, and other issues. So, I, you know, it's a good point. Yeah. Um, Kyler Murray and I could not be from different backgrounds. They're, the experiences we've had are probably so dissimilar, um, so different that you couldn't even comprehend it. But there is one really big thing that we share. And I know it means a whole hell of a lot to both of us. And I want that to continue for everybody. You could walk up to Kyler Murray if he wanted to talk to you, which, yeah, who knows. And you guys could have a conversation about this one thing without even knowing each other. You could talk about this thing for hours, probably. That's kind of interesting. That's kind of cool. It's just, right, it's, it's, what, it's, it's about what connects us and what drives us, and um, I, I really don't want those things taken away. All right, well, I, you know, we'll see. I might break this up into two podcasts because there's a bye week. We'll see. Uh, if not, this is another mega podcast for you all. Uh, but I know we just have one per week right now, so hopefully you all don't mind the length. Uh, again, Oklahoma Idol this Saturday. We'll be back next week to talk about the world of college football and the Sooners' next game against Kansas State. For Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest.